Marcus Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality every Tuesday at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, it's kind of funny. The subject matter for this episode is Superman, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Now, usually I don't discuss too much about any given episode's content before getting into the episode itself. But I'm bending the rule here a little bit because it needs to be said that I tried to record this episode all by myself. Quite a few times, in fact. I actually attempted it three times. I had notes. I had everything set up and organized and ready to go. And for whatever reason... I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't coming together the way it should. I can't sit here and tell you that I've got some kind of big fucking expert opinion about what a podcast ought to be, but at the same time, I'd like to think I've been doing this long enough to know that an episode just isn't working. And that's where I found myself with this particular episode when I attempted to do it by myself. And so it was sort of back to the drawing board, either scrap the episode entirely or find another way, find another approach. And call it laziness, call it just being stubborn. But I didn't want to turn my back on what I thought were a lot of good points that needed to be made. So, thought about it for a little while, just kind of cracked my teeth and tried to think of a way to to approach this stuff before it kind of hit me. I needed to get a co-host for this episode. Now, sent a message to Michael Bailey, and fucking surprise, surprise, he not only agreed to do it, he actually seemed very enthusiastic enthusiastic about doing it. And so what you're about to hear is unplanned in the sense that I originally envisioned this episode going very differently. Basically, like I said, it was going to be just me sitting here flapping my gums about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. And then that was going to be it. And this is just, I guess it's a reminder, at least to me, that Now and then, it is okay to ask someone for help. So, first of all, I guess before we even start the episode proper, I'd just like to once again thank Michael Bailey for uh, bailing me out on this, because I'm not sure that he understood that that's what he was doing at the time. But I'm the one who lived through all of this, and I'm here to tell you that the original episode, which incidentally is never going to see the light of day, But the original episode was such a mess. It was such just this train wreck of clusterfuck 
rickety chaos that he really actually uh, pulled off what I think could be a minor miracle in salvaging this episode. So thanks a lot, Michael. Very much appreciate it. And uh, I owe you one. So that's it. On with the show. This is it. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Ah! Got to do with Buddy to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm Magnus, your host, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. In fact, I talk about them so much that all my friends and family told me to start a podcast because they're all sick and tired of it. So, lots of love around here, let me tell you. So anyway, today, continuing my Elseworlds series, Everything Elseworlds, with a little bit of a discussion about... Superman, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Now, right now, you might be saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow isn't Elseworlds. It's an imaginary story. Why are you talking about this? Because I want to. Because this is my podcast. Because fuck you, that's why. So yeah, today's show, all about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. And here to help me out with all this is a special guest. He's a man... Who needs no introduction? He's a man who runs his own podcast. He's a man who's given us, his listeners, so much. Up to and including chlamydia in a few cases, but those are just rumors. He's a man who's taught us about the power of words. He's a man who's taught us about the power of healing. He's a man who wants everything at the same time and is everything at the same time. Rasta man, wild man, natural mystic man, two-time con man, soldier man, gambling man, island man, verbally abusive man, bare-chested man, family man, Rachel's man, football man, and undercover policeman. And Crazy Man. For those of you who don't know, my guest was actually arrested six months ago for swearing at passers-by in a New York City subway station. Speaking from experience, I can tell you that requires a lot of talent and effort. Anyway, he was arrested three months later for driving his car the wrong way against traffic. It really gets about, this guy does. Costs Dufo DiManzo a fortune. He's a man with no taste, no manners, no friends. My best friend, he's a man who's in another time and place would have been called a prophet. He's a man who needs no introduction, like I said, so I'm happy, proud, thankful, 
excited but not thrilled to welcome Crazy Michael Bailey back to the show. How you doing, sir? I, 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 there's no use of me to ever podcast again. It can't get better than what just happened right now. Well, the way I see it, Roy Jones Jr. has his own boxing introduction. You know, it's the most exciting yeah. thing we can ever do. So I'd like to think that this is your equivalent of that. And if there's ever any kind of a podcaster's hall of fame, there's the introduction speech. <laughs> Anybody who gives it, you've got my permission. You can just steal that. Rip it off. Go ahead. That's amazing. Thank you, sir. Now it's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> um, anyway, so as I say, we're here to talk about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Now, concept of whatever happened to the man of tomorrow is straightforward enough. Leading up to John Byrne's big revamp in 1986, Superman group editor Julius Schwartz had the novel idea of treating his final two issues of Superman as though they were, in fact, going to be the final two issues of Superman there would ever be with Superman number 423 and Action Comics number 583 with a September 1986 cover date. To do the job, he hired Alan Moore, who'd already made a name for himself with Swamp Thing, and even even at this point, Watchmen was already starting to get a shitload of, of buzz within the industry. So, in fact, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC... Alan Moore pretty much owns June of 1986, which is when these comics came out. Watchmen number one came out on June the 5th, 1986. Superman number 423 came out on June the 12th. Swamp Thing number 52 came out on June 19th, as, by the way, as did The Dark Knight Falls uh, by Frank Miller, the final issue of that series. And then Action Comics number 583 was was released on June the 26th, so... I don't know that more would be quite this prolific with monthly comics at DC ever again. There's really apropos of nothing. I just wanted to throw all this out there and just see what comes back to me. So, Mr. Bailey? Well, he, um, I, I think between Swamp Thing and Miracle Man, uh, he had kind of taken American audiences by storm. And he apparently also had a, a deep and uh, love of the Silver Age Superman mainly because I think uh, in hearing interviews with most of the writers that came over during the British invasion, mm-hmm. you know, they, they got comics later than the United States. So the reprints that came their way were, you know, in like the seventies were the stuff that kids were reading over here in the sixties for the most part. Oh, wow. So he, uh, and according to the introduction and interviews that I've read, uh, he apparently threatened Julia Schwartz's life. Uh, if he didn't get the chance to write this story. And, man, <laughs> this is a mixed bag, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, because uh, on one hand, there are things about the story that I like. On the other hand, there are things about the story I don't like. There are things about how the story is treated by the mainstream comic book press that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And there are things that Superman fans say about it that I'm I'm not really too keen on. So I uh, I did not read this when it first came out. This was slightly before my time, but uh, I, I'm kind of glad this wasn't my first Superman comic because that would have that would have probably just depressed the hell out of me later in life. Well, I don't think I really started looking at Superman comics all that much until I was about oh seven years old. If I, I like you, if I had picked this thing up at uh, at the age of seven, that might have been it. I, <laughs> I, I think that might have been end of the line. I, I said, you know, fuck it, I'm going to Spider Man. There's no way that 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 could be any worse. And 
Well, I, I began reading the Superman comics with Superman 8 and Action Comics number 591. So it was a good solid almost year after the big revamp that John Byrne and Marv Wolfman uh, pulled off with Superman happened. I do remember seeing this book at the orthodontist's office uh, wow. because my, my family has a, a uh, my three older sisters have a history of jacked up grills. And it was kind of a sliding scale, starting with my eldest sister. It was okay. And going down with me where it was a horror show. <laughs> um, so, no, seriously, I not only had buck teeth, they kind of stuck out a little bit. So it was like God was daring someone to knock my front teeth out, which did happen uh, when I went over my handlebars when I was eight years old. Oh. But the uh, the orthodontist office, which I wasn't in braces at the time, or harness, as I like to say, but my sisters were, but, you know, because, you know, my mom's not going to leave a 10-year-old kid home by himself because it's not today. Uh, you know, I had to go with them. And the orthodontist office was just covered in comic books. Just absolutely, the the there were comics in the waiting area. There were comic, there was a kid's section in the back. And I, I don't know what experience you have with doctor's offices. Usually with the doctor's office, you go to the doctor's office and the best you're going to get is Highlights Magazine. Uh, yeah. And, and that toy, that's, I don't know if they issued them to doctors, but it had like, you know, you could, it's like plastic and it had like, it was like an amusement park ride and you could like take little dots and move them through it and stuff. And I, I never understood what the point was. It was kind of like looking at a flux capacitor right. uh, in, in many, but this, but Dr. Ty, not only, and my dogs are agreeing with me mm. on this. Not only was like the waiting room covered in comics, but if when you went back to get uh, treated, mm -hmm. there were comic books everywhere. Oh wow! So, in my very formative, before I was really collecting things on a regular basis, uh, years I I would go back there, and there he had mainly DC books, and most of those oh, were man. Superman and Batman. Okay, and I picked up this book, and it. You know, it had this cover, there's Superman on the cover, and it's got, you know, pictures beside it. And it, it like looks like something that I had seen out of Superman from the 30s to the 70s, which before this and Superman 411 was my only frame of reference for Superman comics. Mm -hmm. And I leafed through it, and holy crap, I mean, like, you know, Clark Kent's revealed to be Superman and Bizarro's there and he's doing weird stuff. But, you know, as, as a 10 year old, I really couldn't wrap my head around what was going on in front of me mm -hmm. because I didn't have the context to understand what an imaginary story was outside of, again, Superman from the thirties to the seventies or what was going on or the historical significance, because, you know, not only was there really no internet as we understand it today, you know, I just wasn't plugged into the world of comics. So I, I put it down and started reading another book, which had Superman, like, as a demon on the cover, which is one of the, the last uh, pre-crisis books. So I had no idea to what I, you know, that what I was looking at, one, was actually worth some money. Uh, yeah, you could have stolen it, right? <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> I would have. Yeah. And two what it represented to not only Superman, but to the era of the silver and bronze age that had come before. But I am staggeringly, amazingly uh, nearsighted when it comes to stuff like this. I mean, I'm the guy 
that in the summer of 1986 went to the farmer's market with my dad, looked through the comics, leafed through this book, uh, said, ah, they're just retelling Superman's origin, put it back on the shelf, and got Transformers number 21 instead. So, yeah, put Man of Steel number one back on the shelf. Oh, my gosh. I just, I didn't know what it was, and it didn't grab me, like, but it was actually through the orthodontists and, 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 and having braces and stuff that actually got me to want to pick up the Superman books in the outside world because they looked kind of interesting. And then I went to the supermarket on that apocryphal day, as Kevin Smith would say, this is when Chaplin found the hat <laughs> and, uh, you know, picked up those books. But this story for years was always kind of like that. Once I understood what it was, was always kind of, it was out of reach because it was expensive. Yeah, you know, back issues. At, you know, I, I don't know why the back issues of this were so expensive because it seemed like it had a pretty healthy print run. But um, man, the comic shop I would go to had it, but it was like you know ten bucks. And you know when you're like thirteen years old, ten bucks is your entire life savings up until that moment. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna be picking that up. I finally read it in the late '90s. They put out a prestige format book that collected it and since then i've gotten the as as you and i were discussing before we were recording i have the deluxe edition uh which is which is very nice to look at and at the comic shop i go to i found a uh british reprint trade paperback that has all of the alan moore stories in it in black and white wow that's kind of weird yeah it was it was 10 bucks i was like yeah you know it's it's you know it's got the the swamp thing story that i like so much and for the man who has everything in this one in it. So I figured uh, just, you know, just for the, that's weird to have on the shelf factor. That was a, that was a good one to pick up. So I would agree. All right. Well, um, I think it may be a good idea to, uh, to just go ahead and dive into uh, the summary of this thing. Um, now, are you good to go? You got everything that you need, like, uh, for, I don't know, sustenance, you got a snack, you can drink. Yeah, you, you're I'm good. Good. All right. All right. Um, then I guess I'm just going to go ahead and peel this off Wikipedia, if that's all right. Uh, let's see. This is Superman. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow? Rotter is Alan Moore. Penciler is Kurt Swan. Inkers are George Perez for part one and Kurt Schaffenberger for part two. Letterer is Todd Klein. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Editor is Julius Schwartz. So... Part 1, Superman number 423. The framing device of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is the tale of a Daily Planet reporter, Tim Crane, in the then-future year of 1997, paying a visit to former Daily Planet reporter Lois Lane Elliott, hoping that she, as the last person to have seen Superman alive, can shed some light on the mystery of the Man of Steel's disappearance ten years previous. The majority of the story is told in flashback, as Lois recounts for Crane, the tale of Superman's final days. Ten years beforehand, a period of relative peace had ensued after the majority of Superman's enemies had either died or vanished. Brainiac, believed to uh, have been destroyed two years prior, Lex Luthor going underground, and the Parasite and Terra Man having killed each other. However, upon returning from a government expedition in space, Superman is met with an unpleasant reunion of an old foe. Bizarro, historically a harmless dunce who says the opposite of what he means, changes his modus operandi to become a 
perfect imperfect duplicate, quote-unquote, of Superman by first going on a killing spree, since Superman never kills anyone, and we're going to be coming back to that, deliberately destroying the bizarro world and coming to Earth as an adult, since Superman's home planet of Krypton was destroyed in an accident and he was sent to Earth as a baby, and then committing suicide via exposure to blue kryptonite, since Superman was in fact alive, Bizarro's twisted logic translated this into his having to be dead to be the perfect, imperfect duplicate. His last words were, Hello, Superman. Hello. The darkening of intent is furthered when two past nuisances of Superman's, Toyman and the Prankster, learn of Superman's secret identity from Pete Ross, whom they have tortured and killed and during a live TV newscast, the fearsome funsters launch an attack that exposes... Clark Kent's secret to the world. While this is going on, this is a hell of a detailed summary, golly. While this is going on, Lex Luthor is searching an unidentified snowy wasteland for the remains of Brainiac, who presumably died when his organic spaceship crashed. See Action Comics number 545 for more on that. Finding the android's seemingly inert head, Luthor claims it with the intent of disassembling it to learn its technology. However, he inadvertently reactivates the head, which quickly moves to take over Luther's own body and motor functions, with the intent of, inven- of avenging his own defeat at Superman's hands. Brainiac, now in full control over Luther, moves to build a new ship and take the fight to Superman personally. Along the way, he stops to pick up the Kryptonite Man, who's been also compelled to seek out and destroy Superman. After saving the Daily Planet staff from an assault by an array of Metallos, Superman takes his closest friends, including Lois, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Perry White, and his wife Alice, to his Fortress of Solitude for safety. Crypto even joins them there, having returned from unspecified adventures in deep space, especially for the occasion. At this moment, the Legion of Superheroes, including the recently deceased Supergirl, who, from an earlier point in her own lifetime, was visiting the Legion in the 30th century at the time they took this trip to her near future, pay a visit from the far future to bestow upon Superman a gift, a trophy of him holding the Phantom Zone projector inscribed, His Supreme Hour. Part 2, this is Action Comics number, number 583. True to Superman's fears, by the morning, uh, by the morning, Brainiac and the time-traveling legion of supervillains have begun a siege on the fortress, with Brainiac erecting a force field around it to prevent other heroes, including Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel and Batman and Robin, armed with sticks, among others, from interfering. In the ensuing battle, Jimmy and Lana find inside the fortress trophies of their own past dalliances with superpowers and decide to use these artifacts to aid Superman in this standoff. Lana is able to subdue the Kryptonite Man, while Jimmy successfully shuts down Brainiac's force field generator. During this skirmish, Luther is able to wrest back enough control of his body to beg Lana to kill him. She complies, snapping his neck. Unfortunately, the Legion of Supervillains is able to determine how these two ordinary humans were able to gain superpowers, and, and using that knowledge... They kill Lana. Jimmy's murdered by Brainiac, who's able to temporarily maintain control over Luther's corpse. He then notes that, the, that his force field is still keeping the other heroes away, despite the destruction of the device generating it. 
A nuclear bomb, launched by Brainiac, finally breaches the walls of the fortress. The kryptonite man rushes in, almost insane in his desire to see Superman turn green and die, quote-unquote, at his hands. Crypto, sensing the threat to his master, attacks and kills the kryptonite man, but succumbs to a fatal dose of kryptonite radiation in the process. In the end, with Brainiac finally de deactivated when Luther's body goes into rigor mortis and the Legion of Supervillains having fled back to, to the uh, future due to Superman's apparent murderous rage at the death of Lana, Superman realizes that not all of his old foes have yet been accounted for, and that the one missing name, Mixes Pitalik, must be the villain behind all of this, as only he could, could have caused such bizarre events to occur. Sure enough, the extra-dimensional imp appears, with a decidedly darker color scheme and grimmer, more serious smile on his face, and claims credit for orchestrating the attacks, saying he's grown bored with simply being mischievous, and now wants to see what it would be like to be evil instead. He then reveals his true form, a giant, purple, truly five-dimensional shape, a vaguely humanoid shape, and begins stalking Superman through the ruins of his fortress. With Lois's help, Superman suddenly realizes the significance of the trophy given to him by the Legion of Superheroes and threatens Mix Mixus Pitalik with the Phantom Zone projector. Upon seeing this, Mixus Pitalik panics and says his own name backwards, which sends him back to his own dimension. At the same instant, Superman activates the projector, sending Mixus Pitalik into the Phantom Zone. Torn in, torn in two between dimensions, Mixus Pitalik dies with a horrific scream. Since he's broken his code n never to kill, Superman, in penance, voluntarily enters a chamber containing a sample of gold kryptonite, which permanently strips him of his powers and disappears into the Arctic wasteland. When the other heroes enter the remains of the fortress, they find only Perry White, his wife, and Lois still alive. Superman's body is never found, and it's assumed by all parties that he wandered into the Arctic wasteland, powerless to die. After the interview is over and Crane leaves the Elliot residence, it's indirectly revealed that the mechanic Jordan Elliot, which is a reference to Superman's father, Jor-El, Lois's husband, is Superman. He's without powers and living the life of a typical working-class suburbanite with Lois and their son Jonathan, who's likely named after Jonathan Kent. Lois's words on the Man, Man of Steel's final fate, I never saw Superman again, is now understood to mean the man who emerged from the gold kryptonite chamber was no longer superhuman. He seems to prefer the life of a normal man, finding great pleasure in his job as a car mechanic, and stating, and I quote, Superman was overrated, too wrapped up in himself, thought the world couldn't get along without him, end quote. At his feet, his son Jonathan playfully squeezes the coal in, coal in his hand. Opening it, he stares gleefully at a large, glimmering diamond. The final image is of Jordan delivering a classic Superman wink to the reader as he and Lois continue to just live happily ever after. So, guess <sighs> go first. Do you have um, – you, you began talking about this a little while ago, but do you have uh, more to say? Oh, uh, most definitely. The um, I'm really of two minds about this story. Uh, on one hand, I, I kind of look at the story itself, mm -hmm. regardless of its place in Superman's history, 
and what it represents and, and how does it work as a story and how does it work as a story about the Superman. And then I look at, you know, like the kind of the larger picture. Right. The, the first thing that pisses me off. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Is it has this very flowery introduction. And you, you, you basically have, you know, more setting the, uh, the stage, you know, this is an imaginary story, which may never happen. But then again, may about a perfect man who came from the sky and did only good and blah, 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 blah. This is an imaginary story. Aren't they all now? I am totally down with the idea of imaginary stories, especially in the silver age context. Cause some of those were, some of those were fantastic. I mean, the, you know, the Superman red Superman blue was a great story. The death of Superman written by Jerry Siegel was a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. So imaginary stories in and of themselves, I don't have a problem with because they are the stories you can tell that are outside of the main continuity and quote unquote, never really happened. But there's this idea and, and, and it's something with, that Grant Morrison espouses as well is that they're, they're stories. So anything can happen. And to me, just as a reader and as somebody who consumes entertainment, I'm, I'm very emotional. I want to get engaged on, you know, some level with what I'm watching or reading. I want to, you know, feel something. And, and, and because of that, I want it to quote unquote matter. So if right away you're telling me that they're all imaginary stories, so it doesn't matter, I get what you're trying to say, but one, it's kind of pretentious, and two, it kind of takes me, you know, it, it takes out my emotional investment a little bit. It's like, you know, Morrison, when, when Barry Allen came back, said, well, he's a fictional character. We can do anything we want. You're absolutely right. You can do anything you want with Barry Allen as a character. But if you're following this as a story and as a continuity if you're basically saying they can die and come back at any time, you've taken the power out of any death or resurrection that happens. So that, that kind of, kind of bugged me when I first read it back in like 98, whenever that thing came out, which is kind of amusing that they released the trade a year after the story uh, takes place. It's kind of interesting. (laughs) The, um, this story is, more often than not placed on a 10 best, five best, 25 best, 75 best Superman stories ever told. Uh, Yeah. And I take issue with that. Not because it's a bad story, because really as a story in and of itself, there are things about it that I, that I rather enjoy, but Basically, it's it's like when people say Watchmen is the greatest superhero comics ever told. Kingdom Come, which I do enjoy, is, you know, this fantastic story. And really at the heart of, of all of these stories, including this one, it's basically saying it's the end. You know, it's, it's, it's the end of Superman as we know it in this context. Uh, Kingdom Come is about the end of superheroes as people in spandex running around, having secret identities and such. No, we're going to step down and be one with humanity. And Watchmen is all about, except for the Silk Spectre 
And Night Owl is all about how, wow, it was kind of silly that we did that in the first place, and this is what it would be like in the real world. And anytime you basically are telling me that the best story that you can tell is the end of something I enjoy, there, there's something kind of weird about that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's just it just it just bugs me. Right. So any as as Jack Stanton, as played by John Travolta in the movie Primary Color, said, any any jackass can burn down a barn. So anybody can come in and tell the last story and it and it be, you know, and it be lauded because you get to do anything you want for everybody that when Man of Steel came out. And I don't know if you saw this, but on Facebook, it seemed like most of the people that took issue with what happened at the end of Man of Steel would post panels from this story. Like this is this is Superman. This is who Superman should be. This is a dark freaking story. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean it. I mean pe- people complain about all the violent things that happen in comic books today. You know, in in the first like several pages, Pete Ross. You know, like Metropolis is destroyed. Bizarro kills himself after going on a murder spree. We reveal that Pete Ross is dead. He's literally dead on arrival. Yeah. I mean, he, he shows up. He's dead. Clark Kent's gone. Lex Luthor is pretty much taken out in the first part of the story, you know, and, and, and consumed essentially by Brainiac. We only get to see Lex for a couple seconds more, you know, at the end. Perry White and his wife are getting a divorce and aren't getting along, even though, you know, they're they're having to hide out. You know, Alana and Lois have two panels that I'm sure have launched a thousand slash fiction stories. Damn, dude, you knew where I was going with that one. Across the internet. And then, you know, it's just like, on top of that, hey, you remember your dead cousin? You know, the one you cried about, the one you threw into the sun and all that? Yeah, here she is one last time. And that's just the first issue. That's not even getting into everything that happens. Lana killing somebody before she dies. Jimmy Olsen dying. You know, most of the villains getting killed. It's just, you know, crypto dying, you know, and it's all heroic and it's all dramatic. But basically what Alan Moore is saying is, you know what the final Superman story is? Everybody but Superman, Lois, Perry, and his wife die. You know, everything you ever liked about it is ended in the most violent way possible. And I don't know if people are ignoring that on purpose or if they're just hating everything that they see now so much that they're like viewing this story through rose-tinted glasses. I think, and they just lack fucking perspective, all right? They haven't really been around, they haven't really read enough comics to understand that, in a lot of ways, this is kind of taking a hot dump all over all over uh, Superman. I mean, it's one thing to, to, I guess, attempt to end the story, all right? Which I think, in a lot of ways, those those can be some very interesting stories, but... To to do it in the way that this thing is is done, first of all, and then I and then I guess second of all, that this thing occupies just such this high high status of of you know it's on like you said it's on a lot of top five lists, top ten lists. It almost makes me think these people don't understand what it is that made Superman tick, and I'm not talking about the civilians and the outsiders and all and all of those people. I'm talking about people like. And I, and I hate to play like this elitist card, but people that would say that they're comic fans, I kind of have to wonder, anybody who, who who's who's read this and holds it up as, 
the end-all, be-all of Superman stories. Did you just not read any of the Silver Age or any of the Bronze Age? I did. Were you? Did you just check out, or or or, or what? Because this has nothing in common with that, and on basically any level other than the fact that the same guy drew it. And I, I get, that's about the straightest line that you can draw. I just don't see it. I really don't. I guess my overall reaction to this story, it's obviously it's a rarity in the comics world to ever get the supposed end of the story because on some level, I think we all kind of have to acknowledge that a lot of these characters are never truly going to end. And it's always been telling that this thing is labeled an imaginary story rather than simply being the end of the Bronze Age Superman. It's never escaped my attention that DC just didn't have the balls to put this in continuity and officially call it the end. And no, people, this story is not in continuity. It's called an imaginary story. By definition, that means it's not the canonical end of the pre-crisis Superman. It can be, I guess, if you want it to be, but don't presume to dictate my continuity to me. Fuck you very much. But anyway, I was 13 the first time I read this, 13 years old, and I read uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and I have to tell you, it made a big impact um, because at the time – I was a hardcore post-crisis Superman uh, devotee. The Burn Age Superman, is it was just more in line with my sensibilities about the character, at least at the time. And a lot of that, just kind of looking down my nose at the pre-crisis uh, Superman, I, I have to acknowledge that a lot of that actually comes from this retrospective Wizard Magazine special, which... Among other things, it looked back on Superman's long and varied publishing history. It recapped goings-on at the time with other media like film, animation, radio, and all that stuff. And the, the real centerpiece of, of the special issue was hyping the – it was the then-upcoming reign of the Superman storyline. Am, am, am I ringing any bells here? Do you, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right. And, you know, that was really the main the main point of all this. It was hyping the uh, upcoming reign of the Superman storyline. And I know the trade paperback is called something else, but the comics I bought and have in my long boxes are called Reign of the Superman, so that's what I go by. Anyway, Wizard Magazine. It kind of painted a sort of negative picture of Superman prior to 1986 in several articles. And because of that, I kind of had a, a tendency to look down my nose at all things pre-crisis, but... I have, to, I have to say that even for as snooty as I was back then, and I was very snooty, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow was a serious kick in the balls. I'd kind of come to think of pre-crisis Superman as basically just being this silly juvenile nonsense. But that obviously does not apply to even one panel of whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. It's a lot darker and more sordid than what I had expected the pre-crisis Superman to be. And I guess that's that's my real problem with it, you know? So I guess let me start by saying that the issue here isn't that I don't like the story, in a sense. Um, it's not I, it, it's not really that. It, the issue is that it, Alan Moore goes pretty fucking far out of his way to make this feel like a more mature story. And the problem with all that is that 
his kind of sick and demented method for getting there is to pretty much pick out the quintessential elements of pre-crisis Superman and either destroy them or in the case of Supergirl remind readers that somebody got there before he did and destroyed her first Lana Lang and Jimmy Olsen they die only after regaining their temporary superpowers and putting on costumes <clears throat> Mrs. Pitalik had in the there's an argument out there that he was that he's the quintessential Sil uh, Silver Age uh, villain. You know, he was just a mischievous and fun character. But here, he's the biggest threat to all life in the universe that there's ever been. Uh, Crypto sacrifices himself to stop the Kryptonite Man once and for all and dies what looks like a pretty painful death. You touched on this. Pete Ross is never even shown to be alive in this story. He's... He's just, he, he's dead. The first time we see him, he's dead. And we see this dark, horrific version of the Brainiac and Luther team. It just so on and so on and so on. Um, and it basically feels like Moore identified all the elements that made the Silver Age into a fun, innocent science fairy tale. And then he just steams roll right over them. And it's, it's almost sadistic. And Moore as a writer... He, he looked at Swamp Thing and he turned the concept on its head. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did the same thing with Miracle Man. And to his credit, that was kind of very innovative for its time. You know, no, no one had really come into contemporary comics outside of maybe Steve Gerber. Uh, and his stuff was always a little more irreverent and kind of kicked it in the, in the pants. So basically, more this fan of this era looked at everything about it and said, well, what can I do to take these concepts to their next level? And so he looks at Luther and Brainiac. It's just like, well, what, 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 what would Brainiac do? Well, Brainiac is a soulless machine. So how can I make a team up between him and Luther different? Well, he's going to basically take over Lex Luthor. He's going to inhabit his body uh, basically, you know, kind of shutting shutting off his cognitive abilities and he's kind of like a, a, a passenger in his own life. You know, well how would they find out Superman's identity? Well, who knew Superman's identity? Well, it was Pete Ross. He always kept it a secret. And by God if you were going to have Pete Ross show up in a story, there was more than likely going to be a flashback to the time he and Clark went camping and he discovered Clark's big secret. Right. Which sounds a little more salacious than it really needs to be, but there you go. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, he, he takes Mr. Mixes Pitalik, who, like you said, is like this goofy concept. And if you look at Mixes Tipalik's first appearances, his entire point was just to basically be this goofy annoyance to Superman. He was never like a true colossal universal threat, you know, and I think the animated series pretty much got that better than anybody, mm -hmm. you know, especially showing, you know, doing it the way they did. So what he did was he looked at Mixius Pitalik and said, well, he's a being from the fifth dimension. So when he was first created, he was, you know, he was inert. He didn't do anything. And then he was benign. And then he was mischievous, and now I'm going to be evil, and it's all just so, so random. And and on one hand, you look at that and go, "Wow, that's a really interesting take on Mr. Mixius Pitalik." On the other hand, it's like you're saying goodbye to this era and celebrating it by basically sucking all the fun out of it. 
And, you know, we'll, we'll get into the the depth, I'm sure, pretty, you know, the the, 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 the thing that happens at the end of the issue, uh, mm-hmm. the second issue. Mm-hmm. But it's... I, I, to a large extent, I just agree with everything you said. It was, for the longest time, as, as a post-crisis fan, the pre-crisis era, I, I never really thought of it as silly, but it was just it was just another language almost. Yeah, like, that's a, know, that's it, actually a good way to put it. Actually, you know, you know the the it was just so different and so foreign. Even though I was familiar with it, and maybe it was because I was somewhat familiar with it before I started reading uh, and really getting into the Superman comics, that it was just like it just wasn't for me. You know, in recent years, I've investigated it a lot more and read a lot and enjoyed, uh, especially when you get into the '70s, mm-hmm. when they really start looking at Superman as a character, and it becomes—I wouldn't say it becomes less about plot, but it, it, you know, the the balance between the two is a little stronger. That you know, I, you know, I appreciate it a lot more, but it's just. Bizarro is another good example of him looking at the concept and taking this, again, this character that evolved into this goofy idea of he's just the opposite of Superman and he does all these weird things and you know it's it's a square world out in the out in space and you know it, it, which you know these days Bizarro is either treated as a superpowered zombie. Or just like this malevolent force that is just there to, you know, beat the human bomb to death and infinite crisis and such. Right. <laughs> but, right. But, you know, for me, you know, my favorite Bizarro is from the Superboy series, actually. But, you know, when you read like the Silver Age stories, I mean, they, they you know, they had an entire there's an entire trade paperback out there called Tales of the Bizarro World, which has all these things like Bizarro coming coming to Earth. And going on to a movie set with Frankenstein and just not really understanding what's going on. I mean, that that, in it, you know, was kind of the heart of what Bizarro was. And what does more do with him? Oh, he's going to be the exact opposite of Superman. He's going to destroy his own planet and come to Earth and kill a bunch of people and then commit suicide. And it's just like, you know, the, the real malevolent force here isn't Mr. Mixius Pitalik. It's Helen Moore. <laughs> And, you know, and yeah, and that actually kind of uh, picks up uh, something that I wanted to get into. I mean, look, yeah, in a strictly realistic world, this is probably how it'd all go down in the end. If you if you have this many lunatics out there taking pot shots at your friends, sooner or later, one of them's going to be successful. I mean, the law of averages just isn't on your side here. But to me, that that goes to the heart of what of what has always set DC apart from Marvel. You know, DC was the world of infinite possibility. And DC published these myths about these science fairy tale characters and these are heroic heroic characters that had these these impossible abilities granted by magic or at best f- fuzzy science. And then Marvel, that was really just science fiction and these were flawed characters that had a fairly limited range of abilities, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. And it all, most of the stories were usually, they were, they were just grounded in a vaguely more realistic type of setting. Would you agree with all of that? Yes. 
And it just seems to me that, you know, as much as I admire Crisis on Infinite Earths as a story and also as for what it attempted to do, I kind of have to acknowledge that DC, in publishing that story, they basically sacrificed what made them unique in the marketplace. And my argument is that whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow was one of their early salvos in doing that and basically – I don't want to go so far as to say selling out because that sounds a little too punk rock somehow. But <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that you know DC they special like I said specialized in these science fairy tales and it where it could be assumed that you know the good guys are always going to win the bad guys are always going to be punished nobody ever gets killed or if they do they don't stay dead and these you don't need to ground these types of stories you you just need to you just need to dream you need to just just imagine. But whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is completely anathema to the type of stories that gave DC a brand identity in the marketplace. And that's usually why it bugs the fuck out of me that you know people are going to point to this as their, as their favorite Superman story. I mean, I could understand – like you actually touched upon this a second ago. I could understand if someone's favorite was Kingdom Come. Now, I'm never going to relate to that, but I could kind of see it, you know? But this storyline, it basically decimated some of the most pure and innocent concepts of the Silver Age, and it kind of seemed to take a fiendish glee in doing so. And so this joyless killing spree, that's your favorite? I mean, look, I expect that from some dipshit, literati, New York Times hipster book critic, but comic book fans really should know better, you know? Well, to be fair, DC at this point in time was was heading into uh, kind of a a different place that you know they had started the '80s behind the curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel was outselling them. Marvel was, in the eyes of most comic book fans, more popular. You know, they they had New Teen Titans out there, and they had Legion, which were two huge books, but everything else seemed to be you know, just, just not doing as well. So they do crisis and it, and it gives them this giant shot in the arm. Right. And I will never look down on that because to be fair, I got into DC after the crisis, you know, it was about a, it was about almost two years after the crisis, but I got into that universe. That is the DCU that I came to know. And, you know, I, I do not agree with the concept that the, multiverse was too hard to understand so we need to simplify anything that was a couple of creators getting together with an idea and justifying it in their own heads and that and that's fine i mean they they, they kind of have to do that you know yeah. if you're if, if you know comment you know especially starting in the 70s the inmates started running the asylum so to speak where you had the fans that grew up with this stuff coming in and, and taking over. And, and if I've learned anything over the past quarter century of collecting comics is that creators really aren't that much different from the readers. You know, they have their prejudices and they have their ideas and you, you either agree with it or you don't, you know, Marv Wolfman didn't thought that it was all convoluted. A lot of readers didn't, but he convinced he and Len Wein managed to convince Dick Giordano and Jeanette Kahn that this was the way to go. And frankly, it's what the company needed at the time. 
whether it was necessary is again, you know, a debate to be had another, you know, another time. But they were really trying to move forward and be. I don't want to see they they wanted to be dark, grim, and gritty because I think that came later with both companies. But I think they were trying to do things in a more, quote unquote, mature way. You know, we're we're going to have Dark Knight out there. We're going to have Ronin. We're going to have Watchmen. You know, these these are literary ideas. You know, mixed in with our superhero stuff. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost like you know, I I kind of wish we had somebody on here that really was a huge fan of this story. You know, to kind of give you know that perspective because it's just not something I see. Because while I look at it as being you know well written, I mean it's you know it holds together. The, the story has you know the story follows. Yeah, he's he he's put thought into every panel you know especially in the first issue the artwork is rather amazing i think perez is interesting to ink kurt swan because while everything looks kurt swan in the face the bodies and everything look kind of more george perez which is kind of fascinating to look at it's not so much in the second issue where the art you know where kurt swan who i respect as a superman artist and as an artist in general just could not handle action as well as other artists. And I think the second part suffers because of that. Cause it's, it's the big action piece. This is where everything comes to a head. I mean, the first issue is all set up, right? You know, we're, we're, we're breaking everything down and it ends to be fair, ends on a really emotional note of Superman alone in the fortress crying because his entire world has just collapsed around him. You know, and just everything he's ever known is gone you know, his secret identity is, you know, blown out of the water. One of his childhood friends is dead. His villains have seemingly gone crazy. He's had to hide those that he cares most about in the fortress just to protect them. And he knows the storm is coming. Right. You know, if, if my villains are coming after me, they're going to find me here. And this is just the best place where I can make my final stand. So then in the second, the second part, you know, he goes into even more detail, like the conversation between Superman and Perry about who Superman really loves really struck a chord with me because here's Superman finally admitting that Lois was the woman for him and yeah. that while he'll always care about Lana, it's never going to happen. There's just one problem with that. Marty Pascal dealt with that in the 70s. It was a, it was a, a storyline where for... Several. I don't know how long it really went on uh, because it was kind of happening when I started reading the little bit run that I read. Mm-hmm. But Lana was basically throwing herself at Superman. And Superman finally had to say, and it's kind of amusing because not only does he shoot her down, he brings Lois out while he's doing it. It's like the only thing he could have done worse is just start making out with Lois in front of Lana just to drive that point home that, you know, this is the one for me. So then Lana hears this with her newfound you know her regained superpowers from a lois lane story that oddly enough josh bertoni uh who does uh bertoni's benito beetle bonanza and he's been on a bunch of two for two freak stuff uh clone saga chronicles a bunch of other podcasts 
uh, did a little radio adaptation with me and another person playing playing Lana and and Superman, and it's going to be released at some point. So I'm familiar with the story that they're, that they're referencing. But she basically goes on a suicide run because Superman has shot her down. She's got nothing else to live for, and it's just like, wow, that's that's kind of a lousy way to take that character out. Not, I'm going to get on with my life. I'm finally going to live for me. Superman's never going to love me the way I want him to love me. No, it's, well, I'm going to go defend him. And if I die in the process, well, that's just, that's just okie doke with me. Well, I'm and- kind of, I'm kind of, uh, just one more, sorry. I'm kind of surprised she didn't seduce Jimmy right then and there. Well, actually, I'm going to have to wonder about that. But, I mean, I don't know. They were undressed in the same room. But, um, when I were, uh, we, we are kind of, tangenting here but um there was a point it's like 1979 1980 was around there lana was seconds away from marrying sean connery i mean vartox and (laughs) you know it felt like you know this was not a consolation prize for her It, it i i remember those stories and you know as goofy a character as vartox might have been she loved him, and this mm-hmm. was—I mean, this was, she thought, a good way for for her to spend the rest of her life. This was a good guy, God help her, for her to spend the rest of her life with. And for it, it just kind of felt like Moore is sort of doing this abrupt about face, specifically because it works well for his story, if not especially well for continuity. And. You know, I think that's really the – like anything to do with Lana – like I have no idea who the hell this character is. I know that they call her Lana in this story. I have no idea who this person is. She has almost nothing at all in common with um, the character and the development she'd had all through the Bronze Age, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of feels like all of that kind of got thrown out the window so that Alan Moore could have that one moment where – Lana basically throws it all away as an act of unrequited love. And I just, you know, I mean, look, a lot of people bag on Lana and I can, I can kind of see it, but it's just in the pre-crisis or in the post-crisis or whatever else, except basically everywhere except for Smallville is what I'm saying. I've always kind of liked Lana a lot. And it felt like this was beyond just killing her off. I mean, I'm not even saying that Superman has to end up with her in the end, but is that really the best you could have done? Well, I, I think the the main thing to remember is a lot of people say that this is the end of the Silver and Bronze Age Superman, and I, I kind of disagree with that because I really don't know how much of the Bronze Age Alan Moore read. You know, this seems to be a goodbye to the Silver Age Superman, you know, as it stood. So on that level, everything that happens, as dark as it gets, you know, it kind of reflects the Silver Age, you know. right the toy man and prankster team up and, and basically torture Pete Ross to death. Right. Um, that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad we didn't actually see that happen because I'm, I'm seeing like a lot of Quentin Tarantino imagery in my head with, with how that uh, torture scene would have actually gone on, you know, just, you know, bring in dancing. the gamp, huh? <laughs> yeah. Or more, more of like, you know, Michael Madsen dancing around and cutting off somebody's ear. Okay. And, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're there. Metallo is the very much the Bronze Age Metallo. 
but it doesn't really feel like anything that happened to him outside of you killed my brother uh, was really kind of dealt with. You know, it was just it was just, you know, I'm this is Metallo going crazy, turning a bunch of other people into Metallos and we're going to lay siege to the daily planet building. So because we have to destroy the daily planet building, because if we're going to end Superman, the daily planet building has to go, too. Right. Because, you know, it, it just th- that can't stand, apparently. So on that level, I can kind of see where he what he was doing with Lana. But like you, I, you know, I, I've always kind of had a soft spot for the character Smallville, notwithstanding, uh, you know, I always kind of felt bad for her in the post-crisis era because she was so in love with Superman, but she got over it. She married Pete Ross. Mm. And there's this great story that came out in the President Luther special, or it might have been the Secret Files. I forget which one. But where Superman goes to talk to Lana after Lex Luthor is elected president and Pete Ross is the vice president, mm-hmm. and Lana straight up tells him, I named my child Clark not after you, but after your mother. And That's Jeff Loeb, wasn't it? Yeah, Jeff Loeb wrote that. And no one... Read that story apparently afterwards. Apparently, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, nobody. <laughs> so, you're right. Lana had gotten over, had 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 come through a, you know, come through the other side. And Vartox, yeah, Vartox is kind of s- silly. I mean, you really can't get around that. But here, here, here's this interesting idea that once again she's found somebody to fall in love with, but she really can't be with him. You know, it's it, it's kind of sad, and and her going off to Europe in the first place was kind of, kind of sketchy. You know, it's just like she disappears for a bunch of years and then comes back and is suddenly working at you know working at the Daily Planet and then at WGBS. I mean, it it, it just it's a lousy way to close the doors. <laughs> I guess you could say, because you are really making it. You are breaking all the toys beyond all repair. You can never go back to that. And then there's the ending where, you know, Superman, let's let's face it, Jordan Elliott is Superman, you know, kind of badmouths himself. Like, ah, you know, he, he was too full of himself. He, God, that he pissed thought, me off. You he know. thought the world couldn't get around, get along with him. And basically what you're doing with that is is taking the, the crux of what everybody says is awesome about this version of Superman, that he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do and to say, ah, humanity could have gotten along without me. I didn't need to do anything. I, I was holding everybody back, as a matter of fact, you know. God, what was I doing? What was that? What was I doing saving all those lives? What was I doing, you know, saving the the earth from destruction again and again and again? What about all those people that are now, you know, like have grandchildren now because I was able to save them at one point? Nah, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm kind of glad everything went. And, you know, well, it's just it's it's this moment that kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, look, I'm one of those people that thinks Superman, he doesn't there needs to be a little bit of humility, but at the end of the day, the guy flies around in a fucking cape. He knows how awesome he is, you know? And it's not it was it, it, he's not flashing back to some ancient story that nobody read 20 years ago. Um this same fucking story, he saved I would say all of creation from the most evil destructive force it had ever known. And Mixes Pitalik as a benign do-gooder doesn't threaten anybody. Yeah. Mixes Pitalik as a sort of mischievous imp doesn't threaten anybody. 
Yeah, because everything that he does is undone the moment he's, you know, deuces. Right. Uh, uh, Mixes Pidlick that's determined to wreck shop on anything and anybody he can has to be put down by any means necessary. And I realize that, especially the pre-crisis Superman, this is not a game for him. He has these powers, and if he farts in the wrong direction, he could kill somebody, right? This yes. Is, and so he takes all of that extremely seriously, and I and I appreciate the reverence and respect he has for his own powers. I, But at the same rate, this is one of those times when this – I mean this is the ultimate job for Superman. Dude, if you don't do this, there's nobody out there who can. And I think – he would understand that. I don't. I mean, I like I said. I know that he has he has this no kill policy and all that stuff, and that works great when we're talking about offenders that the legal system can deal with. You don't need to zap some purse snatcher with your heat vision because we have a legal system that's more than adequate to deal with that. There's literally nothing the human race can throw at a at a Mixes Pitalik gone rogue. We got nothing. And well, so, I would, I would even argue that he killed him. I don't think he did. He was sending him to the fifth dimension. Mister mm -hmm. Mixes Pitalik was the one that made the decision to say his name backwards to go back to the fifth to go back to the fifth dimension. Mm -hmm. So Superman was trying to put him in a place where he couldn't hurt anybody. He ran and died in the process. It's not like Superman pointed a gun at him and pulled the trigger. He. I don't think he was ultimately responsible for Mr. Mixia's Pitalik's death, which makes that whole thing. It's like, you know, like those how, how it should have ended shorts that are out there. Oh, yeah. I, I almost want that for this where it's just like, well, I killed Mr. Mixia's Pitalik. And, uh, you know, I, I made a I made a vow against killing. So I'm going to go expose myself to gold kryptonite. Lois is like, you know, Superman, you really didn't kill him. What? No, I've, I've got to go expose myself to gold K because I have a no killing rule. So, no, no, Superman, you were trying to send him to the fifth to the Phantom Zone, right? I, I said fifth dimension before. I meant to say Phantom Zone. I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah. So, so were you, would that have killed him? Uh, no, he would have just been an immaterial phantom and spent all reality there until he escaped and all that. Okay, so you were trying to put him in prison, essentially, right? Yeah. So he's the one that said his name backwards, right? Well, yeah. D did you make him do that? No, did you did you use some kind of like super hypnosis or whatever you know whatever the fuck you have in your you know your bag of tricks you know with your super ventriloquism and shooting shit out of your fingers and stuff? <laughs> well, well, as a matter of fact, I didn't. So how did you kill him? Well, I caused his death. Well, no, he suicided by cop, Superman. It's not your fault. Well, I'm gonna go expose myself to Gold K anyways because uh, you know I'm kind of done with this whole thing. You know, I have no secret identity and. All my friends are dead except you, and, you know, I'm just <laughs> tired. I, I want a nap, basically. It's, it just doesn't hold water for me when I really look at it. <clears throat> well, right, but the other the, the other side of that, though, was um, uh, the, the, the point that I was going to bring up was that, you know, he has that code, and you know what? I applaud it, you know, by all means. Um, you know, don't kill, uh, you know, easy offenders, you know? But I think Superman, of all people, would realize that's not a code. That's an ideal. And you should strive to meet every ideal that, you have, that you've set for yourself. It's just part of being a responsible adult. But at the same time, there, there, there comes a point when you know, a man's got to rise above principle. 
if you don't put this guy down, whether it's to zap his ass back to the uh, into the Phantom Zone or kill him or whatever else, whatever you got to do is whatever you got to do. But this is a job for Superman. And his own actions in this story tell me not that Superman is irrelevant, not that the world doesn't need Superman or anything else. It's actually the, the complete fucking opposite. The fact that a, a, a being like that like Mixus Pitalik is out there and capable of going rogue and unmaking all of creation. That's the strongest argument anybody could possibly make that we need Superman. And it's the most irresponsible fucking decision this guy – because, you know, God forbid word gets out of this and what happens when Darkseid comes knocking, right? What do you do mm-hmm. then? And it just kind of felt like Moore wanted to end this story in a certain way and – Whatever it took to get there is, you know, hey, whatever, not my problem. It's going to end with a human Superman, and if you don't like it, well, fuck you. And it just kind of feels like, you know, every – like the, the, the very steps you took to get to that, to that conclusion undermine your own conclusion. Your conclusion is self-defeating. And it, look, maybe I'm holding this up – some people would say that I'm holding this up to, you know, a level of literary criticism that it's not meant to – that it's that it's not really supposed to to me, but Alan Moore's cult, I mean fans, they are they always tell they're they're always blowing sunshine up this guy's ass, telling us how talented he is, how multi layered everything is, how textured. Well, aren't these little kinks that he should have thought out? I mean, you, I, I you don't you, you shouldn't need a thirty three year old college dropout to sit here and and edit your story for you, guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean. It... Getting into the idea of Superman never killing, uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> this is the first time I've really wanted to talk about it since the summer, because the 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 outpouring of anger and bile, selective, that came, uh, that came after Man of Steel. And look, you know, it's not how I would have wanted to see the film ended, but I think I've told you this. I, I think I've said this elsewhere, and I've told you personally. You know, I haven't been truly 100% super happy with any Superman film I've ever seen. I like them all to one extent or another, and I can find positive things to say. And, you know, Superman 1 and Superman 2, you know, have that childhood connection. But really, I have yet to see somebody truly get the Superman that I see in my head on screen, which is very egotistical, but, you know, there it is. So I, I, I just want you to remember that you said that because we're coming back to that in just a bit. But go ahead. OK, so Superman, you know, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen Man of Steel or haven't been on the Internet for a year, maybe you just woke up out of a coma. And this was the first podcast you listened to, which is congratulations. I'm glad you came out of that coma. And I'm but, glad you made the right choice in listening to my podcast. <laughs> but, you know, he kills him and suddenly everybody on Facebook like has this complete freaking meltdown. And the one thing I saw again and again and again, the one image that people shared more than any other image was the panel from this story. And it was the most blatant disregard for context ever. Like Superman said that once. So that's how it has to be. You know, this is the best example of Superman talking about his code against killing. Right. I don't think Superman should kill. I don't. I don't think he should. I don't think he should be a Punisher type character that when he flies into a situation, man, you're I'm sorry, it's over. You might as well say goodbye to your family and, you know, 
get get on, you know, just make peace with your maker because you're about to meet him. When John Byrne wrote the story where he killed the Phantom Zone villains, I I'm glad there was not the internet as we know it today. Then, because I think I don't know if I would. Holy be shit! <laughs> but you know, it's still it's something that people are still pissed about today. And to me, if we're going to take Man of Steel as an example, Superman killing Zod in the heat of battle is much preferable to Superman killing three powerless people after the fact. There is a difference between killing in battle and an execution. And both stories have their merits. And what the great thing about what happened in Superman number 22 is that the creators did not just the next month pretend it didn't happen. It had real consequences, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where he left Earth, which a bunch of people would be like, Superman would never leave Earth. Everyone, I think people want Superman to be an icon at all times. And the problem with the being an icon at all times is that you can't do stuff like what Alan Moore did right here, which is explore him as a character. Because on a dramatic level, icons are boring as fuck. They just, you know, the guy that does the right thing all the time and you know exactly what he's going to do in every single circumstance, there's no dramatic tension. You just know what's going to happen. So the idea of what happens when Superman kills and what are the ramifications of that is interesting to me. So on one hand, if Superman blames himself for the death of Mr. Mikshes Pitalek and decides to give up his career, that's worth exploring. It's just, it's the coward's way out. You were hinting at it before. It's basically Superman saying, well, I've taken a life. I don't deserve these powers. Fuck humanity and everything else that comes. And the next time there, you know, next time Hurricane Katrina happens, you know, maybe I'll just join up with FEMA and help out, and that's how I'll help out. It's not that my superpowers could have helped prevent this. It's irresponsible to say, if I take a life, I'm going to give up my powers. That is just completely reprehensible to me, as a matter of fact. Right. Well, and, you know, like I said, I mean, the, um, you know, the the story, the story that, that brought him to this conclusion, it that's not the lesson that he should have taken away from it. If anything, it's the complete opposite of what I think any normal, sane, rational adult would have, would have taken away from all this. Yeah. Hey, look, I made a promise. Shit happens. You know, um, nobody wanted this. I certainly didn't want to have to kill anybody or indirectly cause someone's death or however you want to put it. But end of the day, I mean, this guy had to be stopped period. And this is what it took to happen. There was no, there was no chance to reason with him. This is it. And, and as far as the the controversy about Superman killing, look, if if you choose to get irritated about Superman killing in any context, can we just make sure that this gets applied to everything? I'm not going to get specific because I already ran out, went on the record about one particular time that he killed somebody, and it seems I'm the only one in the world that had a problem with this. All I'm saying is that if you're going to get pissed off about Superman killing in Man of Steel, then can we get pissed off about it, uh, him killing in, uh, let me think, Superman Returns and Superman 2? Anytime it's ever happened, just be consistent about it, right? There's no need for a double standard. One will do nicely. Um, as to – that kind of gets into the – I guess I should just start off by saying that this – entire story to me it's 
it, it's the ultimate example of diminishing returns. The first time I read it, it was just kind of a sucker punch, but I, I, I enjoyed it at the time. And since, since rereading it, every time I reread it, what I find is I like it a little bit less every single time. It looks to me like Alan Moore kind of has a hat trick. Right, he just basically comes in and shits on everything. Right, this, this is his, this is his little parlor trick. He's done it zillions of times now, and Michael, you are literally the first person I've ever seen that has that's actually come right out and commented on this. Basically, what he does is comes onto a book and then pretty much completely destroys it. You know, either to end the story or to continue telling the story on his terms. It's Supreme, Marvel Man, Swamp Thing, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. I mean, fuck, the list just goes on. Every, you know, everything you thought you knew was a lie. Um, am I the only one who thinks this is just kind of bullshit? I'm, is it, I mean, is it me? Am I the crazy one here? No, I mean, to be fair with Swamp Thing, he actually developed the character after that. So he broke the, he broke the toys and then kind of rebuilt them and created a whole new series. Uh, you know, Marvel Man was his attempt to kind of deconstruct superheroes. And really, once he, he got to, to like a certain point, he, he left the book and Neil Gaiman took it over. Right. You know, once once he, he I guess he took it to his natural conclusion or he was taken off the book. I really am not sure the history behind there. So I don't want to talk out of my ass with this, though. You know, I, what I think a lot of people mistake whatever happened to the man of tomorrow for is his run on Supreme in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Cause he came on to Supreme after that character had really, I, mean, I, there's not much you can say about it. He was kind of a, the Superman character for the image universe. And, you know, at one point he lost his powers and he had the hammer of Thor and there was kids Supreme and there was lady Supreme. And we were doing everything we could to rip off everything that was happening in Superman at the time. Mm-hmm. And then he takes over the character and turns it into the Silver Age Superman. And he told some really great stories. And the, the one thing I hear more, more often than not about his run on Supreme is that he was doing Superman and he was doing the only real Superman at the time. Because at the time that he was Oh, that was the Electric his, Blue Superman era, wasn't yeah. it? Yes, which much maligned. And I don't think it really deserves all the crap that it gets. Uh, yes, I will defend Superman Red, Superman Blue. Hey, I'm right there with you, buddy. So, but he had it easy. He basically just did stories kind of like it was. You know, basically everything I saw in Supreme is what he would have done with Superman. And based on that, I am thankful that he never got his hands on Superman. Because after a while, it just would have been boring. I mean, Superman... There, there is there is the theory out there among some people with Superman is that he's the most amazing character because he he represents that anything is possible. And I, I for me, a Superman that sits in his apartment and looks at the grains of sand on Mars and paints pictures of that is the most boring thing possible. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, it's amazing. Yes, it's imaginative. I will not argue that fact. But it's not something I want to read. That, that what does that say? Oh, he's awesome, and we're just going to read about him being awesome. You know that 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 doesn't scan for me. The the reason why, at the end of the day, as an adult, I can go back to the post crisis era and go that was the Superman for me, is because 
more often than not, they treated Clark, they treated Superman as if he weren't an icon, but he was just a man with great power trying to do the best he could. And he would fail and he would have self-doubt. And I think most Superman fans, and I'm not maligning them because, you know, you like what you like and you take away from art what you take away from art. But I think they want him to be Jesus. I think they want him to be this perfect representation of all that is good. And when you deviate from that fact, it's like you're urinating on, you know, their parents' graves or something. It's like, you know, you're 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 crapping on the American flag. And it's almost like it's really hard to put into words that aren't completely insulting mm-hmm. <laughs> to the vast majority of Superman fans, but it's just like do you want a Messiah or do you want a character to read about? Now, if you want a Messiah, that's fine, but you got to be upfront about that. You know, you, you, you have to be, you, you have to, you have to, to own that desire to just want to read about somebody that makes you feel good about yourself instead of wanting to be challenged as a reader. You know, how does it make you feel? How does this character think? One of the great things about the bronze age of Superman is really, to be fair, during the Silver Age, they went into Superman's psychology on several occasions. A lot of people will tell you they didn't, but they did. It was mostly him crying about Krypton, which is a pithy way thing to say, but well, it's, it's but at the same time, it's kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but during the seventies is when the writers really took a step back and looked at this man and what he was. You know, Elliot S. Maggins wrote, "Must there be a Superman?" which is a story I used to not like, but I have come to appreciate it more in recent years, especially after having a chance to hear him kind of give his take on why he did that story and why, because my biggest problem with that story was that the guardians of the universe were the ones that were telling Superman that he was a social drag, the omnipotent beings with the big power battery who send other beings out of the universe to enforce their will and, and their mandate they're the ones to tell him you may want to take a step back. And that just never held up for me. And he had a really good uh, explanation for, for why that is. It's just because they're, they're egotistical. So of course, (laughs) of course they would be the ones to do that. And after he said that, I was just like, you know what? You're absolutely right. You know, I will reevaluate the story, but you know, especially in the, who took the super out of Superman four parter, a four-parter in 1976. This was almost unheard of in the Superman books. You know, two-parters were, were pushing it. But they kind of looked at who Superman is, who Clark Kent is, what they mean to each other, and why they need each other. And I like that. And that's what I want out of Superman. Because, yes, he is the character that does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But I And I'm inspired by that. But that doesn't mean that he can't have feet of clay sometimes. And more with this story pushes the fact that he does have to be like that. And I think ultimately that is my biggest problem with it, because what Moore is ultimately saying is that if Superman deviates from his iconic status, he's no longer Superman. And that was silly in the first place. Uh, yeah, the uh, conclusion of it, I... You know, in, in a lot of ways, I don't feel like I could have said it much better myself. And 
push comes to shove, that's the main reason why this does not work for me as the end of the – and I'm going to be using this as sort of a blanket term, I realize. But as the end of the pre-crisis Superman, whatever the hell that even means, it doesn't work for me because the concept of it is self-defeating. The story is just way, way too dark and nihilistic and bloody for my taste. I mean if this is the era of Superman that you want to riff on – this is not the type of story you want to tell. I mean, this. I don't think a story this, I don't know, bloody, uh, mature, uh, whatever you want to call it. I don't think that even has a place in the the uh, uh, post-crisis Superman era. Whenever they started, I don't know, it was probably around 1994, 1993, 94, they started getting, maybe pushing the envelope for themselves as to, as to what was permissible in a superman story even by that standard this story doesn't just doesn't belong but for the pre-crisis superman forget it this is why i think the death of superman from superman number 149 and let me think uh the amazing story of superman red and superman blue from superman number 162 Mm -hmm. shit even all-star superman any one of these are better are they're they're better endings um than whatever happened to the man of tomorrow i mean Take the death of Superman, and again, I'm not talking about the doomsday thing. I mean Superman, number 149, written by Jerry Siegel. It's an imaginary story, and yeah, Lex manages to kill Superman, but first of all, he only succeeds by exploiting Superman's true weakness. It's not kryptonite. It's not magic. It's his belief that people can change for the better. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, Superman's death is literal – which immediately puts it kind of ahead of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Superman's death is literal, it's permanent, it's meaningful, and it's got major consequences in the story. But it's not – in and of itself, it's not a repudiation of everything Superman himself ever stood for. It's basically Superman – his luck just ran out one day. Shit happens. Superman dies. Luther's tried and convicted by the Kandorians. And Supergirl reveals her existence to the world and then takes Superman's place as Earth's champion. It's it's a kind of sad, but at the same time, a kind of dignified ending. And I, yeah, and absolutely. I, Superman may be gone, but the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way goes on because ultimately that's an ideal. And it's an ideal that anybody can pick up on. It's not just Superman's to do. Anybody can fight the good fight with or without superpowers and capes or, or what have you. you ultimately – that's what Superman's all about. You peel all the other bullshit away. Uh, you know, uh, bright red boots, six foot tall, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and tells the truth, all that stuff. The core message of Superman is all about doing – not just doing the right thing, doing the right thing for the right reasons. No apologies, no excuses, no regrets. And Superman number 149 is arguably the best evidence of what an aspirational figure Superman is. And you know what else? Superman number 149 was written by Jerry fucking Siegel. Now, originally, Julia Schwartz wanted Siegel to write this, the last Superman story. It became whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And I think Superman number 149 alone proves that Siegel still had things to say about Superman even decades after creating him. And honestly, I don't know what happened or why it didn't work out or or whatever, but I'd have loved to have seen what Jerry Siegel would have done with the story. And... And, and again, I, I mentioned this a second ago, Superman Red and Superman Blue. It's another imaginary story, but it basically sees Superman get split basically in two. 
He solves all of the world's problems. And then Superman Blue, who's always been in love with Lana, marries her. They live happily ever after. Superman Red marries Lois Lane, marries her, and they live happily ever after. And then on top of all that, Jimmy Olsen marries Lucy Lang, and they too live happily ever after. It's kind of... You know what? Now this actually just hit me. It's like three weddings. That's kind of Shakespearean. But anyway, it's nothing but one big happy ending. And I think this is the kind of ending that the pre-crisis Superman should get. You know, it's maybe a little sentimental, but I'll take that over Alan Moore's bloodbath any day. And as to All-Star Superman, I'm, you have to squint a little bit and kind of overlook some continuity stuff that relates directly to DC 1 million, but even that's workable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm glad actually that Scott Gardner doesn't listen to the show because he's known to hate Grant Morrison. But in this case, I kind of think all-star Superman does a hell of a lot more to somewhat bring the story to an end. And sorry, Scott, no offense intended if you're listening, but you hear a lot these days. And I guess maybe this is the real point of the story aspect you hear a lot these days about fans using the phrase, my continuity. And what I think that means is someone's personal view of a character or universe's history. And I think the reason for that is because, let's face it, these things have been around for 50 to 75 years now, and they're going strong. Everybody has his own continuity on some level, if for no other reason than... I, I haven't read everything. And even if I have, I wouldn't have retained it all. That four-part Superman story you're talking about, I think I know what you're talking about, but I'm struggling to remember offhand who wrote it, you know, things like that. And if you get into these characters, you kind of have to set what your, what your continuity is, at least as far as the stuff that, that you've read. So I guess in the official Magnus continuity of the pre-crisis Superman, I think – Either the death of Superman, All-Star Superman, or Superman Red and Superman Blue. These are just better conclusions to the character's storyline than anything Alan Moore has ever shit out. And I guess I just regret that Schwartz, for whatever reason, let himself get talked into this. I know that there's a lot of juice to be had from having a rock star like him come on board the book to tell the end of the story, but... I just don't think he was the right guy to send Superman off into the into the sunset. And oh, actually, and I do have I, there's I can't believe this. I was actually just digging through my notes now just now. Actually, I do have one other little note if you have a minute. Yeah. Um. The thing when I when I read this book or reread it, um, it had been a couple of years, but I reread it. For the first time in a long time, I want to say it's like two years ago or three or some three years ago, whenever this hardcover came out, basically, mm -hmm. that was the first time I'd read it in a hell of a long time. And the thing that really jumped out at me was that Lex Luthor in this story is – he's kind of a non-issue. Um, he's, I think, dispensed with by page 12 or something like that. And, you know – Look, let's face it. Luther's always been top dog among Superman's enemies. You know, other villains, mm -hmm. they all kind of have – they all pose their own unique threat or just annoyance. But they oppose Superman really because Superman's a good guy and they're bad guys. But Lex has a real grudge against Superman. Their story, at least in the pre-crisis, their story begins 
uh, as children, they lived together in Smallville. His hatred of Superman survived into adulthood. And it's my view that any supposedly final Superman story needs to include some type of a showdown with Lex Luthor. It's it's as simple as that. It, and it can be anything. It can be a battle of wits. It can be a reconciliation. It can be the death of one character or the other. Anything. But by God, it's got to be something. And Moore didn't even attempt to give us this. I mean, Lex is, like I said, he's kind of mothballed pretty early on. And he has that one brief moment where he manages to reassert control and then he kind of dies like a bitch and then that's sort of the end of it and (laughs) this too has always kind of bothered me i mean lex lex is the one that should have been leading the charge lex is the one that should have been controlling and manipulating everybody to kill each other off this should have been lex's time in the sun but it's not and that just that bugs me so well, one of the one of the things you touched on there, uh, that I think kind of solidifies, you know, my ultimate problem with this story, is that in the death of Superman, Superman died, and Supergirl carried on his quest. In Superman Red, Superman Blue, Superman solved all the world's problems. You know, he was probably still there to help out because you know the one Superman went to live off on on. Uh, you know, uh, the remain, you know, with the Kryptonians out in space, you know, under a red sun, good luck with that gravitational forces, Lois, uh, really, really sorry that Superman did that to you. Um, but no, but, but at the end of the day, when he went out, he went out on top, he went out doing everything he had set out to do. Superman retires when there is no more need of Superman. Now you could argue, well, Mike, there's always a need of Superman. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. There's, there's always probably going to be some problem that he can solve. But for me and for my money, those are preferable to everyone dies. Superman blames himself for the death of Mr. Mixes Pitalek and he gives up instead of trying to redeem himself. Or instead of trying to continue to help humanity in some way, he's just like, deuces, and walks out. Right. Yeah. I I agree with that. And apparently, though, Alan Moore has a different fucking opinion, but I don't know. He's welcome to it. I mean, they, they you know, he, you know, the, it's probably a, an extremely... Uh, apocryphal story of him strand, you know, put, wrapping his arm, uh, his hands around Julius Schwartz's necks and saying, "If anybody else writes this, I will kill you." Uh, it I always was more thought that like, was meant more in fun. I, I always thought something like that probably happened, but it was meant. It was just a joke. Yeah. it's not like he actually meant it. That's what I thought. I don't know. No, no, I'll, I'll agree with that. But it, it's more of to me. It's more of you know they they looked at the bottom line and went, you know, Alan Moore's doing pretty good business for us right now. So uh, maybe we should have him right. I mean, he seems to like the character. I mean, he says he likes the character, even though when he introduced the Justice League into Swamp Thing, it was in the most pretentious and insulting way possible. <laughs> well, so. that's, that's, that's kind of true. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so do you want to talk about the art? Uh, the art in, I, I, like I, like I said before, I, I, I will, Kurt Swan is not my preferred Superman artist, but I respect what he brought to the work in the first issue as inked by Perez. I think it's fantastic. And especially, you know, we, we're both looking at the deluxe edition. Mm-hmm. 
they the recoloring in this deluxe edition is beautiful yes it's vibrant it really makes the artwork pop and i think because of that i enjoy the art in the first part more than the second and it's nothing against kurt schaffenberger who again i i enjoy but this is going to get me into trouble but you can you can send all hate mail to Michael at FortressOfBailey2.com. Kurt Swan is the reason why Man of Steel happened in 1986. Because they could not find an artist to engage the contemporary readers of the 70s and 80s. And there will be people that were contemporary readers at the time and say, I love Kurt Swan's art. I'm not trying to take that away from you folks. But by 1986... It, he wasn't it, Taster's Blend anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's just like 1950s, 1960s, beautiful. Even 1970s, as inked by Murphy Anderson, especially on the the, the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline. Oh, yes, that was Be- phenomenal. Beautiful artwork. But yes. I think the art in, five, in Action 583 is kind of epitomizes why there was a need to revamp the character in the first place. Because... Tastes change. And, you know, I, I, the weird one to say that because I'm the one that tried to hold on to my era, kicking and screaming and long diatribes about how everyone's fucking with Superman. Uh, that, you know, I finally, you know, after uh, the court ordered therapy, I, I was able to come through. And, there is and, the, actually, there, there is a nuance. I don't want to derail you, but we can come back to that if you want. I, I, I see a nuance, and I'll just leave it at that. Go ahead. Okay. But um, but if Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, had been able to maintain a monthly schedule, if people, if you know, Gil Kane even of all people had been able to main, you know, come on and really grab the readers, mm-hmm. I think there would have been a reinvigoration of Superman that would have kept this continuity going. But because Swan did so much of the artwork and became so synonymous with the character, they needed like an extreme shot in the arm just to kind of get things going again. And this last issue proves it. I mean, the art is great. Don't get me wrong. The storytelling is clear. Uh, you know, the, the characters look good, but the action is so stiff. I mean, the best part about it are the quiet moments of Superman looking at the statue, of you know reclaiming his oath and walking into the sunset, of him winking at the camera, you know, and the and the kid crushing a, a piece of coal into diamond. You know, all of that was great. But when you get into the nitty gritty, what what fans of this era were looking for in superhero books, I think it falls short. It falls short. Um. Okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> um. I'm going to have to disagree with you about the Gil Kane aspect, but and that only because him specifically, not because you're wrong in general. Um, the mighty Kurt Swan. Uh, I'm a Kurt Swan fanboy from way back. To me, and maybe the, maybe now we finally are kind of getting into a point-counterpoint kind of a thing, but to me, Superman artists fit into one of two categories. You got Kurt Swan... And then you got everybody else. And unfortunately, the art in this story doesn't really serve my argument that Swan is the greatest. Now, like you said, 
uh, Swan gave all of the characters their uniqueness, their individuality, that they're instantly recognizable from from everyone else. But at the same time, nobody is a caricature. You know, everybody – the art is expressive, but it's never cartoonish. But these issues prove that even Kurt Swan was only human because I've got quite a few qu uh, quibbles. On page 15, and this is page 15 in my hardcover, Swan stacks panels on the left. Now, Westerners read from left to right and then from top to bottom in that order. When you stack panels to the left, you're, what you're basically trying to do is force the reader to first read top to bottom and then go left to right. And it's, it's rare when that ever works. And it doesn't work here. And the weird thing is, Swan gets it right on page 15, then he gets it wrong, or sorry, no, he gets it wrong on page 15, then he gets it right on page 16, then he goofs it up again on page 41. And then you get into that really weird, awkward-looking pose Superman takes at the beginning of Part 2 when he, he melts the giant key to the Fortress of Solitude. I mean, you talk about Photoshop-friendly. But on top of all that, a lot of the panels are just damned weird-looking. They're placed oddly on the page. A lot of them are unnecessarily triangular, and a lot of this stuff just isn't Swan's best work. Now... Making matters worse, he actually has two different inkers this time out. He's got George Perez inking part one, and like you said, Kurt Schaffenberger doing part two. Now, you and I are pretty much on the same page as far as part one, apart from the stuff I just mentioned. Part one looks phenomenal for George Perez's uh, uh, participation. You know, he's got he's got enough of Swan's style, like the flavor of it in place, but he's he gives the art this kind of rougher, sort of scratchier feel that's it's kind of foreign to Swan's usual inkers, but I because they usually seem to go for more of a like a smooth type of style, but I think it works in in this story because it kind of sells the impression visually that this isn't just another Superman story. Even the art is affected by it, and I kind of like that. It changes the tone of it, and that kind of helps serve the story. So for whatever my opinion is worth, and I doubt George Perez is listening to this, but whatever my opinion is worth, he can hold his head up about this for his participation. But you get into part two, and I got to tell you, Kurt Schaffenberger always seemed like a really freaking strange choice to ink Swan on this particular story. Now, I don't think the combination is completely successful because characters, likenesses, they seem to waver. It's on and then it's off. Um, Superman doesn't always exactly look like himself in part two. And the same can really be said of other characters too. But the reason this is also surprising to me is because Kurt Swan penciled and Kurt Schaffenberger inked Superman, The Secret Years, which I did actually covered back in my Superman Begins series. And as I said then, Kurt Swan was the definitive Superman artist at the time, while Schaffenberger was the definitive Superboy artist at the time. So it made a ton of sense to combine them and sort of do a mashup in that miniseries that tells the story of how Superboy became Super Superman. But 
the merging together of uh, of their art in that series and how successful it was for whatever reason it just did not translate anywhere near as successfully in this story and if i'm really honest with myself i might have wanted kurt swan to not only stick with normal and more traditional panel layouts in both issues but i would probably have wanted somebody else to do the inking for for part two i'm i've got a ton of respect for kurt schaffenberger i just don't think he was the guy for the job so Mm -hmm. i guess what i'm talking around here is that there is a lot a lot a lot a lot of stuff that i would change about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow if I could, and that's basically what I have to say about it. Alrighty then, that's fair. So, yeah, do you have any parting thoughts, any final words, any sage advice, any bits of wisdom, Bailey Baileyisms that you'd like to give us? Ah, uh, no. I mean, I, I think I've I've pretty much said uh, to death everything that I that I could say about the story. It's it's it's. I don't hate it. It's not like I want to throw the book across. I mean, I, I went out and purchased a deluxe edition of it uh, just because I, one, I wanted it on the bookshelf, and two, if I'm going to read it, uh, sometimes digging for the individual issues, which I also own because they got a lot cheaper in the 90s. Yes, they did. Uh, thankfully, you know, that's how I'm going to read it. And And to be fair, I would recommend getting the Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow deluxe edition because not only do you get the story you get the dc comics present story with swamp thing which is excellent mm-hmm. uh beautiful story and you get for the man who has everything which i think if people are going to hold up an alan moore superman story either one of those is the one i would hold up as hey this is this is great this is fantastic um i am not trying to say anybody who likes this story is wrong i'm not trying to suggest that you know, you're, you know, a communist and, you know, don't love your mother and like to kick puppies or anything. It's just for me, uh, taking away being a post-crisis fan, taking away, you know, everything that's happened to Superman in the last 25, 30 years. You know, this was kind of a lousy way to send the character off. Amen. And it, it was not fitting. It really doesn't feel right. And I'm kind of wondering why everyone says it is. So... That's all I got. All right. Well, um, I guess the uh, the final bit of business then. Um, why don't you tell everybody uh, where they can find you? Uh, Viewsfromthelongbox.com, which is where my, uh, I guess I would say, main podcast is. Uh, it's a somewhat biweekly show where I just pick out something in the comic book world and talk about it. Uh, sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have people with me. I also do from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast, shockingly, which covers the post crisis era with my co-host, uh, Jeffrey Taylor. Uh, we, uh, we're almost halfway through that era. We've got another year and a half to, to really get through. And I think we can call it as the official halfway mark. Wow. Uh, for that because we're getting in there well 1996 i think is the halfway point uh for that era and we're we're slowly getting there but you can find that at the superman homepage and the superman podcast network.com also at my blog fortress of baileytude where every day i post something about superman sometimes it's a who's who entry sometimes i dig out stuff like direct currents and scan all the superman related stuff and post it up there and i'm also over on the two true freaks network 
where uh, I do Comics Monthly Monday with Scott and Chris and sometimes other people. Right. All right. Well, the uh, the other thing that I'd just like to say is um, as I look through my uh, Elseworlds finest – whoops, the Elseworlds series, sorry, Elseworlds series. I had a little bit of a brain fart there, but fuck it. I'm leaving it in there. Michael Bailey participated in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow as well as my episodes uh, dedicated to In Darkest Night and Red Sun. So it could be factually said that uh, you were a true out-and-out co-host – through um, a good bit of the series, in fact, half of it. So um, I'd just like to say thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, be here and, um, and uh, hang out with me. So that's, it was really cool of you to do that. Oh, my pleasure, sir. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so that's it. Uh, that's it for this week, everybody. Um, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> and we are out. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just 
so perfect. <sighs> Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo de Manzo, and where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay, cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks everyone for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! How, how the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com. And I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network, and in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean that I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com. Hello, and welcome back. You thought that was the end of the show, didn't you? Didn't you? Go on, just a minute. You thought that was the end of the show and I had nothing more to say. Well, as it turns out, you've, you're wrong. Now that I've flushed Michael Bailey, I can go through some feedback. So, first up, this is an email from James Hickson entitled, My Two Cents, and it came through on December the 31st, 2013. That is going to become important in just a minute. But anyway, email from James Hickson, title of which is My Two Cents, and James writes, I'd like to throw my support behind the Legion of Superheroes Star Trek crossover. It's a very fun, continuity-light adventure shared by a Kirk Enterprise Away team and a time-lost selection of 1970s pre-crisis Legion members. Written by Chris Roberson shortly before his messy departure from D.C., 
Also, Dream War is apparently real and very bloody. Now, I'm only going to deal with one of these, at least for the moment. Um, just to bring you, uh, bring all of you up, up to speed, in the last uh, episode in which I talked about feedback from my loyal subjects, one of the things that had come up, there was a request for the Legion of Superheroes Star Trek crossover and for me to review it for this show. You know, just talk about it and shoot the shit and all that stuff. And I expressed some doubt about ever doing so, and the reason for that is because I'm really not all that uh, hip to the Legion and everything that it's become. And so, and by which I, I'm I'm talking about the the unbooted Legion, basically the the version of the Legion of Superheroes that was restored in 2008. Uh, this is basically the Legion that had existed up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, and through there, and that is what was restored in uh, 2008. So. And to my understanding, that's what this crossover includes. And to be honest with you, as I said before, I'm not really... I, what I said originally was that I was not uh, very excited about the prospect of reading about a, a version of the Legion of Superheroes that I've just kind of grown dis disenchanted with. But um, that apparently is... Uh, <laughs> well... I'm going to be coming back to this in just a minute. So um, now the other thing that uh, uh, James mentioned was um, Dream War, and I, I apparently this whole thing had gone totally under my radar uh, because I had honestly never heard of this before. I had no freaking idea what Dream War was, but uh, leave it to my loyal subjects. You guys sent me to school on this one. Um, First up, there was this there was uh, this uh, email confirmation that came through from James Hickson where he said it's very real and apparently very bloody. So there's that. But on the same day, um, I also and that is to say December the 31st, 2013, I got an uh, this isn't an email, but uh, there was a Facebook posting on my page made by Fanboyimus Prime, where he basically sent me over a. a a link, a link to this from the wikia.com uh, uh, homepage. So that's w-i-k-i-a.com, dc.wikia.com. And um, he sent me over a link to that, and it basically breaks down what Dream War was, what it was all about, the players, all of that stuff. And um, people, I don't know where the hell I've been keeping myself that apparently a crossover of this magnitude came out, and I guess I was out taking a piss or something. I don't know what to tell you, but all I can say is that somehow, somehow, this thing came and went, and it was totally off my radar. I had never heard of this before. So, and just the premise of it kind of makes me think that this is something that I should... I, I should give some consideration to. So um, I haven't ma I haven't made a final decision about this yet, but it does kind of blow my mind that something like this could come along, and fucking I just knew nothing about it. I don't know what to tell you there. So there's that. Now, um, actually, now is a good moment to put all of the feedback and stuff on pause and just say if you hear me, you know, kind of honking and quacking here a lot. The reason for that is because I'm still getting over a little bit of a. Uh, 
of a sickness. I was sick for basically an entire week at one point there. And uh, I'm like 99% okay now. But that 1%, it just kind of, you know, I have the occasional, you know, cough. And like I said, I'm kind of honking and quacking and stuff. So um, if you hear any of that, just, you know, please disregard. So anyway, so that's that. Um, so moving on, going back to email and away from Facebook, I, uh, on January the 1st of 2014, I received another email, not a Facebook posting now, you understand, but an email from Fanboyamus Prime. Now, nobody's ever said so, but I'm starting to think that, that James and Fanboyamus Prime, what they do is they coordinate emails with each other. And, you know, basically, the way that goes in my head, I have no idea how true this is, but basically the way it goes in my head is, you know, they're sitting there and they're they're planning this out with one another, and what they're saying is, hey, man, did you send Magnus an email yet about what he said in that last episode? The other guy says, no, I haven't. I thought it was your turn. And he's like, no, motherfucker, no, it's your turn. I sent him the last email. You send him this one. And so uh, what, they, what they do is, just to cover their bases, they both send me an email and uh, make sure it gets covered that way. So... As I say, no idea if that's even true, but uh, that's just the way it goes in my head, and that seems a little more interesting than saying it's all a coincidence. So, anyway, Fanboyimus Prime sent me another email. This one is entitled, Another Email to Kick Reality. He writes, Hey, Magnus, your middle name is an ultra, is it? <laughs> I see what you did there. Transformers jokes aside... Gotta say, really enjoying the Elseworlds exploration series. Will the one that is Wonder Woman and Victorian England be on the docket? Let me just put uh, Prime's email just sort of on pause here and say that, as a matter of fact, no. I've actually gotten a lot of recommendations for um, Elseworlds stories that I can cover. None of which, <clears throat> I'm sad to report, I'm actually covering because obviously this is the final show in the series and uh, most of these things, most of these suggestions that people have had weren't covered. Now, part of that, at least for Wonder Woman in Victorian England, first of all, I really have no idea what what that is. Now, yeah, I can I'm sure I can check it out on Wikipedia, so I'm not questioning that aspect of it. It's more the fact that it's um Wonder Woman. I'm really not all that knowledgeable when it comes to Wonder Woman or her uh, history. In fact, we're going wow, we are really going into the future here, but um Basically, what I've got planned, and when I say when I say planned, I mean I have an idea in my in my mind about what it is that I want to do, but I don't really have too much else besides that. Um, I haven't uh, at some point in the very very distant future. What I had set up, uh, what I had in mind was um, uh, not a Wonder Woman series, but I was going to start reading some Wonder Woman comics because, like I said. I really don't know anything about the character, and, you know, for a supposed DC guy, and I don't really know a whole lot about Wonder Woman, number one, that seems inappropriate, and number two, it also seems kind of dishonest for me to say that, you know, I'm, I'm this big DC guy, and, you know, one of their premier flagship characters has just sort of fallen away, you know, never really did a whole lot with her, so, um, at some point in the future... I, I definitely had some Wonder Woman stuff on the docket. Uh, obvious things, I've, you know, for most of you, I would think. It's going to be 
uh, the George Perez stuff, and then I was gonna, you know, maybe jump uh, jump in the future a little bit um, with uh, the John Burns stuff, and then you know go through all that stuff. So it's definitely you know on my list of uh, future projects. I, I mean, this is just to give you an idea. This is so far in the future. I don't have I don't even have a release date for this. All right, now just to put that in perspective. I've got a plan, and keep in mind, this isn't a blueprint. It's just a plan, right, of stuff that I'm gonna that I'm gonna tackle. That and, and this sort of calendar, this plan, whatever you want to call it, this takes me up to September the 30th of 2014, right? Now I've not recorded most of like 99% of the stuff. I haven't recorded it. What I'm saying is I've got it planned out. In other words, I, I'm, what I'm saying is I've got this big master file of all the things that I want to talk about, and it gets longer all the time, but this big master file that has um, basically all the shit that I want to talk about, and um, it's just got this, this uh, it's, it's all in chronological order with the episode number listed beside it. This is sort of the, I guess, Bible for this show. Everything that I want to do it's all listed in here, and like I said, it goes all the way up. It actually goes beyond this, but I'm saying that the stuff that I have, you know, kind of plotted out and figured out what I'm going to do, that takes me up to September the 30th of 2014. So what I'm saying is I could delete everything, every single thing in this file after that point and be covered for almost all of 2014, right? So uh, big doings going on there, so... Uh, when I say that I don't even have a release date in mind yet for the uh, for the Wonder Woman stuff, I hope this kind of puts all of that into some kind of perspective for you. So, but like I said, I'm not blowing you off. That's something I'm definitely going to tackle in the future. And fuck it, well, you know, since I'm at it, why not do that Elseworlds uh, Wonder Woman story, right? The Victorian England thing. What I can say though is that it was not a part of uh, this series, and you know, the main reason for that, like I said, is because. I don't think I know a whole lot about uh, Wonder Woman, so that's that. So, to get back into um, Fanboy MS Prime's email, he writes, Funny thing, I didn't know until recently was the same writer I praised for his taking Grounded and a Superman-Batman two-parter also was the one who wrote the Legion of Superheroes Star Trek crossover miniseries. And obviously there's a shitload of demand for that. And let me just put this on pause again. Uh, this is me talking now, Magnus. There's a shitload of demand for that because the minute the subject came up, um, obviously people jumped on that. So um, as to what I'm going to do about that, you know, I really don't know. Because like I said, I've really become disenchanted with what the unbooted Legion of Superheroes became. And um, I guess it really doesn't matter now because apparently that Legion of Superheroes is not the original version of the Le Legion of Superheroes. Apparently, that's the Legion of Superheroes from Earth 2. Um, Dan DiDio assures us that that was not actually the Legion for Earth 1. Uh, or at least... You know, I don't even fucking know what to what, what to number all of these different New 52 Earths, but I guess Earth 1. So, I don't know. It's just the whole thing. And, you know, you would think that that would actually make me feel better 
about you know how things are with uh, the Legion of Superheroes and the fact that my favorite version, the Mark Wade Barry Kitson three boot version, basically got thrown overboard so that we could bring back the original version of the Legion of Superheroes. You'd think that all of this would make me feel better. It doesn't. And the reason for that is because my favorite version of the Legion of Superheroes, the three-boot version, the one that I thought had the most imagination to it, the most vision, basically that got deleted for, for nothing. It was all for nothing. And... Because, you know, what they replaced it with, the original version of the Legion of Superheroes, is apparently not the original version of the Legion of Superheroes. That's the Earth-2 bullshit Legion, and now so, apparently, maybe the New 52 universe won't have a Legion. Fucked if I know. Fucked if they know, probably. But there you have it. And so, I don't know, it's all just a very tender subject for me, so, um, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe not. That's the best I can tell you. Um, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. I haven't really made a firm decision about that yet. But what I will say, though, is this. Teaming up the Legion of Superheroes with Star Trek? I see it. I can see the, I, I see the, the logic in doing that, because, um, I think the Legion of Superheroes, and Star Trek, really, but... You know, okay, just imagine the Legion of Superheroes and Star Trek. Both of them, at their most pure, they're ultimately, what they're really about is a hopeful, optimistic vision of tomorrow. What the future may bring. A place where, you know, the future is going to be a, a cool place to live. You know, it's going to be alright. You know, it's going to be a nice place to grow up. It's going to be a, a nice place to raise a family. All of that stuff. You know, there are a lot of common values, when you think about it, there are a lot of common values that overlap between the Legion of Superheroes and Star Trek. You know, and I don't mean just, you know, the bullshit, politically correct, you know, racial tolerance kind of stuff and all that. As important as it may be, I still think that ultimately the real message of both of them is hope for tomorrow. And so it makes all the sense in the world to me to team those two properties up. You know, sometimes you see these comic book team, these comic book team ups, and it really is forced. And for some reason, I'm blanking on a really good example other than Hellboy, Batman, and the Jack Knight Starman. That is one of the most random team ups I have ever read, ever. You know, but now and then a really fucking logical team up comes along: the Legion of Superheroes and Star Trek. And I can see it. So, you know, what I'm saying is it's less to do with, a, with you know, a potential disinterest in either of those and more just kind of feeling a little burned on the Legion of Superheroes considering they can't even maintain a consistent fucking history anymore. So, like I said, I haven't made a final decision about this yet. So there's a, you know, you never know what the future may bring. But I'm not, at the same time, I'm also not going to give you a 100% gold-plated commitment about it either. So, anyway... To get back to Fanboyimus Prime's email, he writes, Ah, IDW. They seem to love doing various comic crossovers and miniseries. There would have been a DC Transformers one, but DC said no to that one, which I didn't know. Which is slightly weird, Fanboyimus Prime writes, which is slightly weird as Dan DiDio, before working for DC, 
worked for the company that made Beast Wars and Beast Machines. As he was in charge of Season 3 of Beast Wars and all of Beast Machines, something about the reboot being why they didn't do it in 2011, but frankly, it'd be more or less an Elseworld, so who would really care? Let me just put this on pause and say, I'm not really sure what Beast Wars and Beast Machines are. I assume those are something related to... Uh, related to uh, Transformers. I remember hearing something that there was a point where they became like dinosaurs or something, or beasts, animals. It was something like that. Which, in ter- which, you know, in terms of things, you know, just really cool ideas I can think of for Transformers, that's that's really right up, right up there with turning them all into fucking Care Bears. But, you know, whatever. I'm not bashing on it, okay? I, I've never seen any of those. Those could be the most amazing things in the entire world, and I wouldn't know, you know? Golly, I don't know if you guys can hear this, but this kid is outside. He's just making all this fucking racket. God, that's annoying. Wish I had a BB gun. Anyway. What I'm saying, though, is I'm not bashing on any of that, so it could be the most amazing thing in the entire the the uh the history of television right and i wouldn't know but you know it just it's one of those things that it just sounded like total jump the shark material to me so anyway not bashing on it not making fun of it i what i'm saying is i don't know about it so you know but anyway i I thought your comparison there was actually very apt and i got to tell you as far as a a dc transformers uh, crossover I would be kind of interested to see that, to tell you the truth. Um, and when I, everything I say now, just keep in mind, what I'm talking about is completely pre-New 52, because, well, fuck it, I'll come back to the to New 52 stuff in just a minute, right? But when I, when I say this, just keep in mind, what I'm talking about is pre-New 52. But imagine, what if it had been, you know, um, well, let, me, well, let me think, well, uh, Young Justice, right? Like a Young Justice Transformers team-up, or Teen Titans, or something like that. Um, I would. I don't know that I would want to make this a Justice League kind of a thing. Uh, I think that there's more. I don't know. Juice to the idea of skewing young on this one. So you know whether it's Young Justice or the Teen Titans or, or whatever else. You know. I think that there's a lot of potential uh, with the idea of some kind of DC Transformers crossover event. I mean, because there's a lot of shit that you could do with that. <coughs> Up to and including maybe, um, oh, I don't know, putting the Decepticons in league with, I don't forces from uh, from Apocalypse. Maybe not Darkseid himself, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe set up that there's some kind of a conspiracy going on with Desaad or something. I don't know. So it just, what I'm saying is that there's all kinds of really neat ideas that could, that could come out of a DC Transformers crossover. And it kind of surprises the fuck out of me that... New 52 or not, Dan DiDio put the brakes on that. I mean, that's that's just... I, I'm, it's one of those things that... The people who collect Transformers might not collect... Might not necessarily follow what's going on with DC. And there's a sense in which I could kind of see the reverse of that being true. P- people who are hardcore superhero, especially DC superhero, might not be all that hip to Transformers. And so what you're doing is you're you're basically offering something that's going to appeal to both audiences and potentially broaden both of their horizons. And so it 
kind of surprises me that this that this didn't. Well, I say that actually, you know, Dan DiDio running things. I don't know. Maybe it's not such a big surprise. Which, excuse me, I just had to um, just take a um, sip off my drink here. Which is a pretty good segue, about as good as money can buy, for what I wanted to say about the new 52. Now, I have not followed basically anything to do with the new 52. Now, there are exceptions to that. I did read... For a time, I was reading uh, the Superman titles because I thought, you know what, they it at least at the time. I mean, who knew? But I'm saying at the time, it looked like they were going to meet me halfway on this and actually do a true blue, full scale, ground up, page one, scorched earth fucking reboot with Superman. Right? That's what it looked like was going to happen, and so. As I've said before, a major gripe that I've had with Superman comics and all of these, you know, new origins and stuff that he's had over the years is the fact that these are not reboots. The only true reboot Superman had had received in his history was uh, it was done by John Byrne. It was Man of Steel back in 1986, and ever since then, what he what he, Superman's basically been victimized by just these really fucking unnecessary retcons, right? And I hate retcons, okay? Reboot or don't reboot, all right? But these fucking bullshit origin story retcons that DC tried to force on us, those just piss me off. And sure enough, um, it was, I think, the very first month of the New 52, Superman did a, um, a guest appearance in Swamp Thing, and it had come out that he's died before. Now, presumably... That was something to do with Doomsday. The storyline called Doomsday. Now, I realize the fucking trade is called The Death of Superman, but the comics I spent money on called that storyline Doomsday, so that's what I go by. Anyway, so I got the impression that basically that particular continuity point was so big, there was no way DC at least thought they could just leave that out. And so they didn't. And what I've since found out is that all kinds of other shit is now still in continuity with Superman and God knows with other characters. And so really, I don't understand at this point what the fuck the point of the New 52 was supposed to be all about. Now, I'm going to head all of this off at the pass and say, if you want to hear more about this, this line of discussion, or really you can listen to any of a shitload of podcasts, but really what I would direct your attention towards is the um, the most recent episode of... Uh, I, 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 it's not the most recent episode anymore. It's the um, most uh, one of the more recent episodes of um, Views from the Long Box by uh, Michael Bailey. He and uh, Andy Leyland did, uh, from uh, Hey Kids Comics, they did a, a Christmas uh, episode uh, for 2013. Uh, Merry slash Happy Christmas 2013. This is episode 177. I'm looking at the little iTunes thing here. Episode 177 of uh, Views from the Long Box, they got into goings-on with uh, the New 52, all right? Now, keep in mind, they've probably read more New 52 stuff than I have, all right? So, from the outset, they're going to be able to better tell you what the New 52 is and what the New 52 is not, all right? So, just 
keep all that in mind. But number two, they make points that I think are so insightful that I almost feel like repeating them here, except that's, you know, copycatting their ideas. And so that's really not cool to do, even though I agree with them wholeheartedly. So I'm just going to split the difference and advise you to check out episode number 177, Views from the Long Box, the Christmas special from uh, 2013. Um, that's not the entire episode is not dedicated to goings on with the new 52, but they have a little five or ten minute digression where they talk about uh, what exactly works with the new 52, and more specifically what doesn't work, right? And so what? But the reason I brought all of this up in the first place is to say that when Fanboyum is Prime mentioned that there had been, or rather there was some sort of an offer at one point for a DC Transformers crossover, and then to find out that Dan DiDio is the one that uh, put the stop on that. My point in going into the New 52 in the first place was saying, well, guys, this is also the guy that brought us the New 52. And my point there was we should expect kind of dumb decisions like that, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. So that's that. Now, to get back into Fanboyimus Prime's email, he writes, First off, we have Red Sun. I really enjoyed the discussion on that story and really need to read it. Something that the Green Lantern slash Batman mashup doesn't share is it probably will be a big letdown, or rather, it will be as big of a letdown as Batman Abducted was to me. Stepping off Elseworlds for a moment, as Batman Abducted was terrible. Then again, it was going for an X-Files sort of vibe and did it or didn't it happen, which can only work in... which can only work if it's in a universe where Batman came before Superman. It was early in Batman's career. Batman Abducted had Superman and the Martian Manhunter mentioned by name in one panel, yet still treated aliens like their existence wasn't sure or not. When Superman and Martian Manhunter are known to exist, the question Batman is asking shouldn't be, are aliens real? It should be, Okay, I need to ask the Green Lantern and the other cosmic guys I know about where the greys or whatever they are hang out and how hard their bodies and bones are so I don't kill them by accident when I kick their ass over pulling that abduction crap on me. Sorry, had to get that off my chest as I remember seeing an ad for Batman Abducted in one of those newsletter flyers for comics in the late 90s and finally reading the story later and it was... Nothing like like I expected, or frankly, good. Now I'm going to put Fanboy Miss Prime's email back on pause here for a minute. This is one of those times when my loyal subjects just really sent me to school. Um, between uh, Dream War and now uh, Batman Abducted, you know, I'm look. When I first started this show, I never had any illusions that I knew everything that there was to know about about comics. All right. I figured that I had a maybe a different perspective on a lot of obvious stuff, but at the same time, I I just didn't. I never thought that my knowledge was so complete as to be encyclopedic. But my God, you guys have really sent me to school this time out because I never 
not only had I never heard of Dream War, I'd also never heard of freaking Batman Abducted. And from the sounds of it, this is something I'm really not going to enjoy. So I don't know that I'm necessarily going to get into that. But my point in mentioning all of this is, <clears throat> you know, I, like I said, it's just it was a surprise to me because I thought that I, I would have heard about most stuff that's come down the pipeline. But here are two major stories that I've just, it somehow, I guess I slept through or something. I don't know what to tell you. So, anyway, back to Fanboy and Ms. Prime's email. On to an Elseworlds with aliens that was good. We got Superman War of the Worlds. Yeah, that story is a mashup of Superman's beginnings and the radio play of War of the Worlds. Again, another story I need to check out as it sounded to be really good. Now, let me just put, a, put your email on pause again, uh, Prime, and just say that... Uh, I loved Superman War of the Worlds. I went into this thing, honestly, with sort of minimal expectations. I didn't really know a whole lot about it, but I figured that between the title and the fact that this is Elseworlds, I could kind of guess where this was going. And sure enough, I pretty much called it. But I got to tell you, even on... Even though the story is a little bit predictable in the sense that you know that this is sort of a... This isn't a, a, an example of a, the title of a comic book riffing on a popular title. This is actually some kind of a mashup, right? Like you said. And um, the title and the cover of the book make that pretty clear. But at the same time... For as goofy as I would have thought that concept was before reading the comic, I gotta tell you, this thing is fucking awesome. Alright, uh, Superman, War of the Worlds. Is this the uh, the greatest Superman story ever told? Well, you know, probably not. But at the same time, it hits upon a lot of what I think are some really cool hallmarks about Superman. And honestly, some of the things that I like most about um, Superman in terms of just like his... I don't know, visual, his aesthetic vocabulary is a golden age type of Superman. I, I don't know why, but I've always kind of had a fondness for that, which is weird if you think about it, considering I've really not read a whole lot of golden age stories, but I do like the idea of a, of a depression era uh, Superman where he has sort of minimal powers and all that stuff running around uh, doing his thing. I'm going to take another drink off my... Uh, sun-kissed here. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Just my throat gets a little bit uh, dry, even now, and uh, just got to keep drinking stuff. Anyway, Superman, War of the Worlds, like I said, it was, um, it hit upon a lot of things that I, that I just like seeing of Superman. You know, like I said, the, you know, the Depression era, Golden Age type of Superman, but also, Superman fighting giant fucking robots. If you put a story out there with Superman fighting giant fucking robots, I can virtually guarantee I'm going to read it. You know? I love the, the idea, just the, the image of Superman beating the fuck out of giant fucking robots. I, 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 I like it. I like it. And so, that works for me. But the other thing is one of the quintessential, I guess, defining elements of Superman is self-sacrifice. His willingness to do whatever it takes to save the day. 
even if that means he has to pay the ultimate price. And that's exactly what ends up happening in War of the Worlds. Superman, yeah, he saves the day, but at the cost of his own life. And you get the idea that that is perfectly fine by him, as long as those aliens get put down. And to me, that is one of... That may be Superman's main defining feature, but that's definitely one of them. His willingness to lay down his life, if necessary, to do his job. And so, I guess what I'm saying in bringing all this up is, there's very little about Superman War of the Worlds that doesn't ring true for me. A lot of this stuff adds up. It makes sense to me. So, anyway, what I'm saying is, it's... It's a great story. I highly recommend it. It's the consummate one-and-done story. It's only one issue long. Trust me, you can get through it, and you'll love it. So, get back to uh, Fanboyimus Prime's email. Speeding Bullets, uh, I really got nothing to say about it. You pretty much covered it all. Red Rain is another Elseworld I've heard of, but never read. But it sounds interesting and worth reading. As always... Love the show, and look forward to seeing what else you review, and of course, the Smallville views you intend to do. Not a fan, as I made that clear, but I'm sure I'll find your hard examination of it enjoyable. Let me just, and that was the end of his email. So first off, let me just say, uh, Fanboyimus, thank you very much for, uh, you know, consistently writing in like this and always having, you know, uh, just a different angle. You know, you always have something to say. It's never just um, a thing where... Um, the email is just nothing but gibberish, and there's all these misspelled words and stuff, and I don't even understand what the hell is even being said. You actually uh, are always really good about, you know, sending over ideas, and so I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. So thank you very much. That's number one. Number two, as to Smallville, um, I've actually gotten um, some pretty interesting, uh, I shouldn't say feedback about it, because there's nothing really for people to respond to. But there seems to be some uh, interest out there in, uh, in, in Smallville and, uh, and, I guess, in what's coming. And so, you know, I guess maybe... Now I need another drink, sorry. Alright, so all those little pauses... <clears throat> All those little pauses and stuff that you guys keep hearing, well, now you know what they are. It's, it's me taking a drink. Anyway, as to Smallville, though, um, a lot of people have uh, shown a sort of interest in, uh, in what's coming. You know, there's a lot of interest there to, to see what's, uh, what's coming down the pipeline with this. Now, since we're on this subject, and since I didn't really talk too much about it last time... Um, I, I think maybe I, I need to go over my format uh, for what that's going to be like, at least at first, what those uh, Smallville retrospectives are, are, are intended to be. So, um, first up, uh, for Season 1, Part 1, that retrospective, uh, the Smallville retrospective, basically I'm going to be talking about, um, let's see, well obviously there's the first episode, which is uh, pilot, and um, <clears throat> let's see, then the next one, this is, oh wow, I go, 
I really go through this. Wow, I cover a lot of ground in this first episode. Basically, it, it goes all the way uh, from uh, pilot, which is to say season one, episode one, uh, pilot. And then from there, it goes all the way up. I'm just looking at my notes here, so forgive me. Um, yeah, it goes all the way up to episode seven, Craving. So, and that's that's what ends up happening. So, uh, the first episode, um, the, or at least the first part of all of this, is actually going to be pretty much uh, packed. Uh, and so, as far as uh, density, and, you know, just to kind of give you an idea, I've got 11 pages worth of notes in my Microsoft Word document about all of that. And so, whatever that means to you, that's going to be a shitload of stuff. Now, truth in advertising, um, what ends up happening is that I end up kind of slowing down on all of that later on. Uh, what I end up doing is actually uh, taking a little bit more of... Just taking a little uh, my time a little bit more with it as I, as I go along, right? So, I cover uh, episodes 1 through 7... In uh, my in the first part of uh, my my um, uh, season one coverage, and then for um, the second part, let's see. I cover uh, episodes number eight through twelve, and then in the third part, let's see. I start with episode fourteen zero. And then that takes me all the way to episode 17, which is Reaper. So you can see in pretty short order, what I start doing is it, it starts slowing down. So I actually cover the most episodes at, at, at all in one go in uh, episode one, which is odd, odd to me for a lot of reasons, but whatevs. That's just the way that things worked out. So what I'm saying, though, is that you know this is going to be subjected to uh, some uh, uh, pretty rigorous analysis on my part. And really, well, I guess the real intention behind it is that I just love Smallville. I love talking about Smallville. I, I'll i just come right out and say it. Smallville is my favorite version of Superman outside of comics, right? So whether it's movies or, or, or TV shows or animated uh, stuff or just whatever else. To me, Smallville is top dog. Uh, that's my favorite non-comic book version of Superman ever. And um, as to my favorite live-action Superman, it's actually kind of a toss-up between Tom Welling and Henry Cavill. So, um, but my point, though, is I love Smallville. I love talking about Smallville. And even if you're not a fan, I do think that there's going to be something for you here um, in the sense that I'm coming, at, I'm coming at the material in a way that I honestly don't, well, I don't know if I should go so far as to say nobody's ever done it. I have no idea what else has been said or done on, on the internet. But I've never seen, heard, or read anybody subject Smallville to the kind of scrutiny that I intend to put it through, right? So that first episode, like I said, it, it's kind of breezy. It moves through a bunch of episodes all in one go. But after about that point, coverage really does kind of slow down. And I cover fewer episodes, but in greater depth, Right, and so hopefully that all makes sense. And um, my hope is, you know, people who maybe don't like the show 
whether they start liking it or not, they'll hopefully at least see some of the same things that I see in it. And maybe they'll start, maybe for the first time, to see value in Smallville where maybe they hadn't before. So that's my hope anyway. So that pretty much does it for feedback this time out. And so what I'm going to do is uh, just, first of all, thank everyone who, who, who wrote in with feedback, namely James Hickson and Fanboy MS Prime. Thanks to both of you very much for taking the time, number one, to listen, all right? Just to even listen to my show. That by itself is surprising all, uh, all on its own, that people even even care. So that's number one. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Number two, thanks for taking the time to write in. Um, I, I like both of these emails very much. I like both of you very much. And I really appreciate you taking the time to send me your thoughts and your reactions to things because that's one of the things that makes any podcast worth listening to, at least in my opinion, whenever other people are giving their point of view. And I, first of all, I like both of your points of view. And second of all, um, obviously I was able to make hay out of this because we're closing in on 45 minutes worth of stuff here that I was able to talk about with you guys. So, you know, you guys are just content generators for me. So thank you very much, both of you. I appreciate you taking the time not only to listen, but also to write in and share and share your viewpoints. Number three, um, what I've noticed is that whenever I do a feedback type of show, which is, I think, what inspired this, because on the day that this episode or this episode, that these emails came through, um, I'd actually gotten, I'd actually released an episode wherein I talked about some of the feedback that I'd gotten. So, or actually, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that day. It was actually a couple of days before. It was December the 28th. But anyway, or something. Fuck, I don't remember. Anyway, but it was around there. That's the point. So, um, you know, what I've noticed is that whenever I talk about the email uh, and the feedback and stuff that I get, I tend to get email and feedback and all that stuff. So, nevertheless, actively soliciting more. So, um, you know, if you guys have anything that you'd like to that you'd like to have read on the show, any kind of points of view, any questions, anything like that, please feel free to email me. You can reach me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G- N-U-S at gmail.com, trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Also, I need some iTunes reviews uh, because I've got a, a new feed now, and the title of it is Two True Freaks Presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Now, there is an old feed uh, from my Libsyn account that's up there right now, and that one's titled simply Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. And that's not the one that needs uh, that needs more uh, more reviews. The one that needs the reviews is the one that's titled Two True Freaks Presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality." And so I'd really appreciate it if you guys could uh, uh, put in some kind of review or something like that on iTunes for me. It would, it would be a, a big help. So all in all, I think that's that's pretty much it for this episode. Don't really have anything else in the way of feedback to talk about. So. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to all of you next week. Bye, everybody. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.